live from the 607, it's the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour, where we're talking everything movies, TV, comics, and entertainment. Join in the conversation on social media with the hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome to an all-new edition of the ODPH Podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. What is happening, everybody? Thank you so much for joining us this week. My name is Ken M. Joining me in studio, as always, you know him. He is the co-host. His name is Padawan J. I don't say this often when social media sites I use update because I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever, I'll get used to it. Holy fuck, the new Twitter update sucks. Oh, well, speak on it, Pat. So for those of you who don't know and haven't opened your Twitter in a while, open your Twitter. Uh, you know how they had, for a while, it was the latest tweets, you know, everything in kind of chronological order. Then they decided to bring out the curated list where it was like, oh, here's what we think you want to see first. You had to go, you had to set it so you went to your latest tweets. They've now forced it so that you automatically go to the curated, here's what we think you want to see list first, and you got to go over to the latest tweets list, and you can't fix it back. I hate it. I haven't had too much trouble with it just yet, but I'm sure if I get deep diving into it, I just see a lot of Twitter spaces, and that always throws me off left and yeah, right. And that's I'll like that. no, no, just you know, exit stage left for me on that. But ironic, you mentioned Twitter because we have a special guest joining us on Skype that we know from Twitter, and I have to give him his flowers because he always, always, no matter when I come on his show, and I'm so gracious he asked me to come on his show, is always giving me mine. I am long overdue to return the favor. Now, we have been doing this whole podcast thing for almost five years now. Something like that. And this gentleman is one of the best people we have met during this entire voyage, journey, whatever you want to call it. We've known him since about 2018, I believe. Met him in person at 2019 at the infamous podcast meetup at New York Comic Con where we hung out with So Wizard. Superhero Speak, Pine of Comics, and this gentleman as well had a great conversation. I completely missed the Watchmen panel, and I regret nothing. Well, nothing. They for also it. fucked up on their end of things. Yeah, that's a whole. That's other a story. whole other story. That's a whole other ball of wax right there. But still, I regret nothing because the conversation was dope. It was awesome meeting him, and we have been connecting obviously through Twitter. If you follow at Od Parlayar on Twitter, and you should, you probably see me tag this gentleman a lot of times because he is one of my favorite people to talk to. He always has great takes. He does a great blog when he decides to drop one. If it's a poll, asking you know the Twitter questions to everybody that's involved. He is helping to make the community better as well. I am f- super freaking psyched up. I'm almost screwing up my words because I'm so amped up. We have him on the line. Ladies and gentlemen of the ODPH Society, please give a warm welcome to the one and only Rob Stewart. From the SWO production slash Join the Stu World Order podcast. Stu, what is going on, man? Oh, that was far more than I deserve. I really appreciate it. I know I always say such kind things about you, but you you earn it much more. I, I, oh, stop, I can't no. uh, say enough how much I thank you for those kind words. No, absolutely, man. No, seriously. You are one of the people I always check on Twitter because you're always interactive. You're always having everybody involved, too. And it's always just... When we go on there, everybody's like, oh, Twitter's so toxic and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, if you go hang out with the right people, it makes it so much better. And you are one of the reasons for that, too. So we have to say thank you for that. 
Yeah, Twitter's what you make of it, and I take a lot of my cues from you, man. Like, I tell you all the time on my show, you are the MVP of independent <laughs> podcasting. You are so, so kind and warm and welcoming to everybody out there, and I just strive to be half the presence on uh, the, the Twitter independent community that you are. No, man, you're absolutely killing it on there, too. And you do an amazing podcast, too, so I was saving that intro for you. If somebody is not familiar, and I don't know why, because seriously, if you're not following Stu and his podcast, fix that immediately after this episode. Why don't you tell everybody what you're all about with the Stu World Order? Sure. So we have the Stu World Order podcast where we review random comic book movies. How that works is I bring guests on, whether it's people in bands, folks like you who are in uh, other podcasts. I bring in a lot of guests that they'll talk about what they have going on. And I have a list of comic book movies that I think right now is still, you know, 1 to 110, 115, something like that. And they'll give me three numbers from the list, and I will say, all right, here's your choices. And then out of those three that they pulled at random, they choose the one that they want to talk about. So we go into the show. It's a pretty positive attitude on the show. We look at every movie and say every movie has ups and downs. So we list some ups for the movie, some downs for the movie. Then we give it a rating out of 10, and we do a talking point, usually something tangentially related. Uh, Like our most recent episode is Batman Forever at this point. And our talking point on that one is, what's your favorite fan theory? Because I'm living and dying on the idea that Batman Forever is a movie that takes place in the Batman 89 universe. Bruce I, I, Wayne has died in that universe. Yeah. Batman Forever is a movie they made about him. I saw your, your post on Twitter about that, and I sat there for legitimately like five minutes going, holy shit, I never thought of that before. It, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is a great theory about that. There's so much Batman talk going on right now, and obviously from the movie, and you know we're going to be deep diving into that in just a second. But this is what you get from Stu, and definitely if you're not following him on Twitter, you need to. We have his show links and everything you need to know about him in the liner notes of this episode. So if you're like, hey, how do I get in touch? Boom, we make it that much easier for you. And if you want to get in touch with the ODPH podcast, well, we just simply say odphpodcast.com. Join the conversation on our social media accounts. Check out Parlay Points. New blogs dropping this week. The T Public Store sale going on. Items up to 35% off. Now is a perfect time to go get some ODPH swag. All that and so much more. ODPHpodcast.com. But kicking off this episode, we kind of alluded to it with the Batman talk. There's no other big story going on right now in the land of entertainment than that. So, Pad, you got the numbers for us about Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, and so many others, movie that is just dominating the box office. Yeah, so uh, over the weekend, it opened with a astounding $134 million and change uh, here in the United States, putting it number one at the box office ahead of uh, Uncharted, which finished number two. Uh, looking at the last couple of days, it has grossed another 372 plus million dollars here in the states so for totals uh domestically it is currently at 155.6 million dollars internationally it is sitting at 124.2 million dollars for a worldwide gross of 279.8 million dollars yo and that is all according to boxofficemojo.com that is an insane stats so right now we are going to start deep diving into the batman So if you haven't seen the movie yet, we are giving you fair warning right now. We do talk spoilers here on the show. So after the countdown, if you need to pause, watch the movie, and then jump back in, hey, that's perfectly fine. We're just letting you know right now because we don't like spoiling anything for you. We give you that warning. So after the countdown goes, it's fair game. So that being said, 
And we got to switch it up this week, though. Mm-hmm. In three, two, one. Stu, what did you think of the Batman? I saw it twice, actually, and it did change somewhat dramatically between the two because I saw it Thursday, the day it came out, and then I took my wife and saw it on Friday. And it went from one viewing to the next. It went from good to very good. It's definitely an entertaining movie. I will say it, especially the second time I saw it, it feels every minute of its runtime. And... I will say I'm uh, maybe I'm taken in by the fact that my wife, while we were watching it in theater the second time, just kept falling asleep. Oh, she was she was very tired that day to begin with, that she kept falling asleep, and a couple times during the movie she started to snore, and I had to be like, "No, we're in a crowded theater." Oh no! But boy, it's it's uh, they talked about how it's a three-hour movie, and the second time I watched it, boy, did it feel like a three-hour movie because having seen it once. I sat there and was just like, wow, there is still all this stuff left to happen. And it felt like I had already been there for so long. Pat? Uh, Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. It lived up to every one of my expectations. You know, my girlfriend wasn't able to make it just because it was a long movie and she had to work the next morning. So that's fine. And And I think she was honestly on the fence about it just because one of her favorite movies of all time is The Dark Knight. And it's one she routinely watches. It's It's always in rotation every couple of months. You know, and we were hanging out Friday night or Saturday night, I forget it was, and we were watching something on, on oh, we were, we were watching a movie on Hulu, and of course, first couple of minutes or whatever, the movie on Hulu, you know, you get the ads. Well, because it had opened that weekend, Batman ad was in heavy rotation on Hulu. So we got the, we got the Batman Hulu ad, and she's like, okay, yeah, I kind of want to see this movie. So that's in the plans for us to go see at some point when it's not, you know, Nor'easter bearing down on us. You know, but for it, it didn't feel long in my viewing when we went to see it. It was one of those, you know, I was so engrossed and I was so captivated that, you know, I put my Apple Watch on theater mode and it doesn't light up, but it still vibrates. There's an occasional time when I go to see a movie, it'll vibrate and I'll just kind of like, all right, hey, what's going on? I'll just kind of check it quick to make sure it's somebody not going, hey, SOS, you know, I, I need to talk to you. You know, so, but it went off maybe two, three times and I, at no point did I ever go, yeah, I need to, I need to see what's going on. I, I need to, you know, what's going on. It, it just felt so engrossing and so captivating that like there were points I could not take my eyes off the action. Your coach, my coach, the coach, coach Duffy was actually trying to make it in studio for this because he was so excited about this movie. And his comment was, it's the greatest movie of all time though. So <laughs> I wish you could tell the story about his adventure to go view the damn movie. Yo. Oh my God. I would love to get him to tell that story. Like if, if mother nature did not decide to curveball the plans of recording uh-huh. this week, you were going to hear that story. Oh, it's a wild story. That is epic. We might have to actually set up a Patreon just so he can say yeah. it uncensored. Yeah. It is that fantastic. Well, this movie, I have to admit, lived up to expectations. And coming off the legacy that is the Christopher Nolan movies, we've had Batman 89, which is one of the greatest comic movies of all time. Oh, yeah. We've also had some stinkers in the history of Batman. Uh, Batman and Robin comes yeah. right to mind. Chill yeah. out. Batman forever, yeah. Yep. And obviously, when you're talking about a character as iconic as the Dark Knight, the expectations are so high that you have to either hit it out of the park or you fail. There is no real room for error. And as we've seen after Batman 89, 
how many times did they switch up directors? How many times did they yeah. have to switch up Batman? Yeah. It's just one of those factors that when you're playing such a character, you have to really connect to the pop culture audience because Batman transcends that from just a normal comic book hero. And then obviously coming off such a successful trilogy with Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale, you had the Affleck years, which love them or hate them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very polarizing topic amongst fans. Sure. When this movie was announced, you had that initial reaction of Robert Pattinson is going to be playing who? Yeah. And Matt Reeves was directing. And obviously, if you knew Matt Reeves put so much life into the Planet of the Apes trilogy, this already had my vote. Because if you haven't seen what he has done with that franchise, it's fantastic. But to see him now step into this world and obviously reinvent what we have known with the Dark Knight to a degree because he decided to take this into a different direction that we have not seen on the silver screen as much. He made this more of a detective story and a very inexperienced detective story, which I loved how the take went. I thought for being a three-hour film, it delivered. I never really felt like anything drug on a little too long. I mean, there was a couple moments here and there. Sure. But that is just me really fine-tuning and really trying to look for something that really stood out to say something was wrong. Now, is it a perfect movie? No. But there is more good with this new universe that we're going to be going into with Reeves and Pattinson at the helm than bad. I think this movie really hit the forefront and really right from the gate too. how this movie was more realistic in the tone of Nolan's, but yet more comic book-esque like Burton's vision was Yes, to a degree. I think it's like it's a good mix. And I think where Reeves really implemented this is like right at the beginning where you have the Riddler who... Stu, let me ask your opinion on this. Have you ever seen a Riddler incarnation as vicious as Paul Dano's was? Uh, no, I can't imagine that there has been. He He's oddly somewhat inconsistent in this movie because I went into it with the commercials and the previews thinking like, oh, this is going to be a really brutal, uh, just vicious, terrifying version of the Riddler. And it starts off and he is. And then it seems like as you get into the movie, he almost starts picking up these weird Jim Carrey traits where he starts kind of giggling and making weird noises and he ends up being not physically threatening at all. So it just seems kind of weird because, yeah, you have that opening scene where I think even my wife kind of gasped where the guy is talking on the phone and he moves off camera and the Riddler is standing right behind him and it's an excellent shot. Mm -hmm. He's so intimidating and then he bludgeons the guy to death and then as the movie goes on, he just gets kind of less effectual i guess but yeah no it's a definite different version of the riddler like i have never in my life pictured the riddler beating somebody to death with a carpeting tool no i never saw that pad have you no i mean it reminded me a little bit of uh from batman the animated series Mm. you know that portrayal of riddler but like obviously with that one that's like a saturday morning cartoon portrayal he reminded me a little bit of that just with the saturday morning taken out of it you know where it's the I'm smarter than you. I know better than you. I'm leading you along on this breadcrumb trail to, to figure things out because that's ultimately Riddler's thing is like, he can't do commit the crime without leaving a piece behind or a clue behind to let you know it was him, you know? So to your question though, have I ever seen an incarnation like this? No. I mean, the only thing I think even comes close is some of the stuff they had the Riddler do in the Batman Arkham games. Mm. But even that wasn't necessarily to the degree 
we've seen in in this movie. So, no, I don't think we've seen anything like this. No, this is about as vicious as you get with him. And I think this was such a really fresh take on him that that's what really won me over with this movie, too. Because with Batman's Rogues Gallery, and you have to remember, it's one of the three greatest in all of comics. It has uh, quite a few college courses about it. Yes, for good reason, too. Except Kite Man 101 is a very hard course. Just putting it out there right now. <laughs> but it, to really take a character that we haven't seen in, in this incarnation, like, sure, we've seen the one from Batman 66, and we've also seen the Jim Carrey version, but this one was as cold as you can get yeah. and calculating with a whole different purpose as he's slowly going through and doing his agenda, and you're seeing a very inexperienced Batman trying to figure this out. And that's why I really love that they went to year two about this. Yeah. Because they didn't start out with him knowing everything and just going in there and being the Batman we knew. Like, he was making mistakes. Yeah, and that was one of the things I pointed out to our group after the movie was all said and done was that, like, they made a point in saying year two. And at the start of the movie, when he gets it, like, when it's a one-on-one fight, he still holds his own pretty good. But when you start getting into maybe three, four, five plus guys... That's when he starts getting in a little bit over his head and he started making mistakes and he, he starts getting hit in the back and hitting the leg. And, the, and But by the time you get to the end of the movie, he's still getting overwhelmed a little bit, but he's taking on like 15, 20 guys and he's like, all right, I'm good. Yeah, I think that scene where he was fighting the Joker gang yeah. at the beginning yep. in the subway, I yep. thought was prime example of it. Even though they had the cool intro where he's talking over the bat signal going off and he's like, that's not a signal, it's a warning. Uh-huh. And then he goes down to fight everybody there. And ironic that the young gentleman that is joining the gang, I'm assuming. He's in initiation. Yes. Did anybody else realize that that's who plays Tim Drake on HBO Max's Titans? No. I didn't realize it when it happened, but I've since seen that. Yeah, so that's a really nice little Easter egg. Oh, yeah. I was marking out about that. I'm like, wait. All right. I know this is not connected, but that would be a hell of a yeah. thing to do. Well, they did Batman on that show, but that's old. That's a whole different ball of wax right there. <laughs> but to see how they kind of were showing how inexperienced it was and then seeing how he's trying to figure out the Riddler, who's always two steps ahead of him right now, I thought was a brilliant portrayal of this. And as we start going into the movie a little more... You're seeing that the Riddler's agenda is really tearing apart the fabric that we know from Thomas and Martha Wayne. Mm-hmm. And that's really much the basis of the movie. That it's not so much about going after the Batman or really having a, a criminal agenda, so to speak. Right. It's more of a revenge tale on what he feels Gotham has done to him. Right. It's not the Joker where he just wants to see pure and utter anarchy. It's not penguin or two-face where it's hey i want to rule the criminal underworld and the air thereby rule all of gotham he's just like hey i got a bone to pick with you and here's how i'm gonna do it yes and i thought that he had a great foil in this setup too because the way they did colin farrell in this movie i thought was brilliant because the penguin i'm sorry is not a number one villain he's a number two like if we have to break it down in football points but to see him in this portrayal, Stu, what was your takeaways for how they did the Penguin in this movie? I really like the Penguin. I love Colin Farrell. I think he's fun in most things. Uh, I, Whenever I think of Colin Farrell, I, right or wrong, I still think of Daredevil. Yes. Say what you will about that movie. He's fun in that movie. He is giving that role everything he has. He's not holding anything back. And then he comes into this and he's very 
uh, he's just very entertaining. He's very, hey, I'm walking here. Like, yes. That's the, the, the sense I got of him the entire time. He's definitely channeling that for this movie. And just so entertaining. I guess he's getting his own TV show. I genuinely can't wait for that. Yep. Peacemaker was a brilliant spinoff of the Suicide Squad. I imagine whatever Colin Farrell's doing in this role is going to be a, a brilliant spinoff of this. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, Matt Reeves is going to be involved with the, the Penguin show as like much like James Gunn was. Now, to what degree, I'm not sure whether he's going to be writing and directing all of it, but I have read that uh, Matt Reeves will be involved. I mean, I love the hell out of Colin Farrell's portrayal in this. You know, listen, no disrespect to Danny DeVito, but he's great in, in his portrayal. But this was just a whole other level of, you know, we always hear those stories on movie sets of like, they were in character the entire time. The voice, the mannerisms, you know, obviously Jared Leto as Joker from, from uh, Suicide Squad comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, but this to me feels like one of those portrayals where it's just it's just otherworldly. And he just brought such another layer to the character that I don't want to say it was lacking, but I feel it needed. Just because I agree with you. He's a good villain when written well and done well. But to me, I don't see or read the back of a Batman graphic novel and go, Oh shit, penguins in this one. I gotta buy it. You know, if it depends in that instance it depends on the writer, but if it's something with like comic with like Matt Reeves and doing penguin, I'm like, yo, I'm in. Yeah, no, I definitely thought they really nailed it because how he's been written the comics lately is how they got it right. Like he's not a number one, but he's a great number two. Sure. And especially how they write him as like the gangster and working with the mob and being that character that you don't know is almost like a wild card. I think is brilliant for what they did for this. It reminds me a lot of how James Tynan was writing him lately uh, in the Batman runs. Like you, you don't have him as the one, but he's also in, involved with so many people, and especially how they did the Iceberg Lounge too, which I thought was a nice touch because it's tying in the corruptness of Gotham with the organized family that they kind of were alluding to a little bit from Long Halloween. Like this is the mm-hmm. only only sprinkles I thought they did for the story, which I'm not mad about because I know a lot of people were speculating it was going to be Long Halloween. I was one of them, too, at the beginning, but then the more I'm kind of seeing, they drifted away, and, and Reeves was really just only borrowing a little pieces here and there right? that I think really worked because we see Falcone's involved, and obviously the twist they did with Serena Kyle, played by Zoe Kravitz, I thought that that was brilliant as well, too. Stu, what was your takes on Catwoman as well? Oh, I... I would venture to say definitely the best iteration of Catwoman we've ever had. Zoe Kravitz is amazing. She was absolutely fantastic in this role. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be that guy. She's gorgeous. So, I mean, anytime she's on screen, you can't take your eyes off of her. But even beyond that, she just has such a magnetic personality. She delivers these lines and you just deeply care about her character. And I, I love what they did with her. I thought she was Maybe the high point of the movie, I kind of wished this was her movie entirely. I was that invested in her character because she seems to have what's going on here. She has her friend who dies. Her friend slash lover. We're never quite sure what mm-hmm. the dynamic was between her and what was it, Annika? Yep. Yeah. Her, her, her partner dies and she just seems really motivated. And she's the character who goes through the change where... She doesn't have Batman's moral compass. She's going to kill people for what happened. And then she's the one who makes the change and at the end decides like, okay, we're not going to murder people. I get it. 
and becomes more heroic after all of it. So I know we're getting a Penguin TV show, and that's great because I loved Colin Farrell's performance, but if somebody turned around and said, oh, we're going to get a Catwoman show, or oh, we're going to get a Zoe Kravitz's Selena Cow movie, I also very much want that. Yeah, now for me, this is probably the greatest performance as Catwoman we've seen on any form of media. Listen, no disrespect to Michelle Pfeiffer. She's great as Catwoman in Batman Returns, but... To me, this, this her performance and the way they used her in the movie didn't feel like eye candy. You know, it didn't feel like, oh, hey, let's throw something sexy on the screen just to kind of break the tension a little bit and, and shake things up a little bit. No, like they gave her an actual story. She had character development, growth. You know, she changed throughout the movie. She was badass. Mm-hmm. There, there was never any moment where she was the damsel in distress of, oh, help me, Batman. No, she could like she could like legitimately walk down a street, kick somebody's ass, and be like, "All right, I believe it." So no, she was great, and I'm I'm with well, Stu. In the climax, in the climax, she actually saves Batman. Yeah, yes. yeah. I thought it was a great twist on the whole like, oh, good, she's not the damsel in distress. Batman's about to get shot in the face. He's being held completely at bay by one of the thugs, and she comes along and saves him. Yeah, I mean, it it felt very akin to some of the stuff they did with the character in the Batman Arkham City game. You know, where she's making choices and they're difficult choices. And and I'm with Stu. If if they want to give her something, whether it's a, a movie, an a, a theatrical release, I know they're doing the HBO Max movies or even like an HBO Max show, I'm all for it. I have zero issue with that. The more Zoe Kravitz, the better. Because she really made this character her own. And I love how she really captured the essence of Catwoman, which is... She is probably the character that you have to really say is the most polarizing in the DCU. Sure. You have to think that because a lot of times she's set up to be a villain, but there's always morals behind it. It's not necessarily just I'm doing bad to do bad. And I thought what we saw in this movie is she was balancing it around. Sure, working at the Iceberg Lounge, but once you find out why, is a very interesting factor to play in there. And then she goes from knowing what's going on to then trying to find out what happened to her friend because she's tied into the politicians and the corruptness that's going on with Gotham. And once that gets leaked out by the Riddler to the world, she now has a sense of purpose that she needs to go find her friend and go get some answers of what happened. So thus becoming a reluctant ally to Batman at first, but one that you can see Bruce understands what's going on with Mm -hmm. and is more accepting for. Because as he starts deep diving into what's going on, he has to use her as a spy inside the Iceberg Lounge because the first time he goes in there, uh, does it go well? Nah, not not entirely. I mean, I thought he had the VIP all set up and he just goes in and then they're like, no, you got to go check your cape at the door. And uh, it did not go well. Stu, what did you think about that fight scene? Which one was this? The first oh, one. The, with the Okay, yeah, with the... The, what was it, Kinsey, the one police officer who's working in the lounge? Yep. It yep. was good. It was maybe of all the fight scenes in the movie, obviously, because I just had to kind of jog my own memory, the one I remembered the least. But you definitely get this brutal Batman where in a crowd full of people who were basically just at a club, I didn't expect him to be so ferocious fighting these guards, but he barely holds back at all, which was very stunning and not kind of what I expected. But, I mean, that's 
you know, it's the joke that they've been saying is like, you know, it's 2005, I'm watching a darker, grittier Batman movie. It's 2022, I'm watching a darker, <laughs> grittier Batman movie. But this version of Batman, man, like he's just, he's letting people have it and he smashes the one guy's face in. And every time you see that Kinsey character from thereafter, he's got the busted nose. And I mean, it's really brutal. No, I, I loved it. You know, it wasn't the best fight, but this is the fight I loved simply because this was the moment where if you weren't entirely convinced this was going to be a different take on Batman, this is the fight scene that told you this is going to be a different Batman because no disrespect to Christian Bale or Ben Affleck, they are both great Batman in their own ways. But more often than not, you see lists of do their Batman kill. You know, if this was Christian Bale or this is Ben Affleck, they're going through, they're whooping ass, and we're having conversations about, do you think that one uh, security guard's spine is broken or not? Yeah. You know, with this, he went through and yeah, he handled his own, and he held his own for a little minute, but he came out of it at the end going, all right, fuck, this ain't going to work. And that was what I liked about it. Like I said, I got nothing against the Bale or Ben Affleck movies, but... In the, if this was movie was in those universes, he whooped their ass and had the information he needed and walked out the back door. This is a younger Batman. This is an inexperienced Batman. He's not there yet, and I liked it. Oh, I absolutely loved it. That's why I figured to mention it as well, because right from there, like, sure, we had the fight with the Joker gang. Right. But this is the first instance we see Batman out of his element and just fully not caring about everybody watching him do what he does. I mean, that's one thing that we know with Batman. He likes to work in the shadows. This is like I'm literally walking into a club full of socialites of Gotham, and I do not care. No. I'm literally going to beat the crap out of everybody to get the information I want. And then he has to take some humble pie and go, okay, that time didn't work. Let me give Selena the or, uh, camera contact lenses, which I thought was awesome. Oh, yeah. And then she starts going through, but once she realizes the agenda is not matching up with her, she pops him out. Yep. And then you start getting a whole different ball of wax going on here. Meanwhile, at this time, the Riddler is plotting his, another attack on the DA, which that turned out to be an interesting scenario. Mm-hmm. Because who saw the Riddler attaching a bomb to his neck and driving through a funeral? Like, Stu, what do you think about that scene? Yeah, that was <laughs> that was very interesting. And again, that's where you get the the detective Batman, the smarts Batman, because, yeah, he attaches this bomb to what was the character's name? Gil Gil's neck and it's going to blow up. But he gives him two minutes that he has to answer trivia questions or, or not trivia riddles. And he's sitting there giving the riddles and the guys obviously freaking out, not in his right mind. And you have Batman there going like, this is what he's talking about, idiot. Say this. Yeah. So you get the, the Batman using his smarts, not just punching his way out of things. But yeah, very intense scene with driving into the funeral, which you don't see coming. And it brought up one of the weirder points in the movie that my wife gave to me is... The Riddler has this list of all these people he's going through and killing. And every single one of them he kills to some degree or another up close and personal except for Bruce Wayne and that seems really weird like that's pretty much the plot armor for the movie in regards to that but that's just kind of tangentially related to that scene yeah no you bring up a good point I mean it was definitely an interesting scene I didn't figure it would go that way I knew something was going on just because we see we see the Gil Coulson close to Phil Coulson yeah that was weird you know he he goes to his car he tries hitting on Selena and tries bringing her home she's out of her element she's like no 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 she leaves he gets in his car there's a whole oh shit there's a guy in the car 
and he gets it attached. So he, we saw him attached, and we heard something click, and I'm like, oh fuck, that's that's not good. I don't know how this is gonna pay off, but yeah, that's probably not gonna be good. And then driving into the funeral scene was fucking wild because, you know, we start to see a little bit of Bruce at this point, and we find out in a scene at the uh, not mansion, but like the clock tower, or whatever the hell he's living at. He's living in a giant tower in the middle of Gotham. You know, we find out from Alfred that like, oh, hey, money's not exactly, you know, unlimited. And, you know, you need to keep up the family you know, business because otherwise we're going to have some issues here. And he's all we also find out he's a recluse. Yes. You know, because he shows up to the funeral and everyone's like, holy shit, it's Bruce Wayne. Like, I, we haven't seen this guy in however many years. But then you get into the whole sequence with the riddles. And, and this is another instance where it deviated from previous batman movies where brute where uh bale and affleck would have handled it a different way it brought in the detective aspect of the comics i was telling this to a buddy of mine who on it was like oh there wasn't enough fight scenes and i go there was enough fight scenes in it what it did though is it brought in the detective because yeah bruce wayne can beat the shit out of people when he needs to but he also figures stuff out with his mind and that's something the movies have been severely lacking in my opinion yeah, I agree with you. And, and to also touch upon, too, because you met you, first time we brought him up, Andy Serkis as Alfred. Great Alfred. Stu, what was your thoughts on him? Yeah, he's a good Alfred. Alfred's one of those characters who he's been played so well so many times. It's Is Andy Serkis one of the worst Alfreds? Maybe, but, I mean, that's less of an indictment on him than it is on, you know, Michael Caine in mm-hmm. Incredible Alfred, and Jeremy Irons just had the perfect dry wit to be Alfred, and didn't do my research. The guy who did the original Batman Alfreds in the first four movies. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the, the old fatherly presence of Alfred. Yeah, I thought this one was not a bad role like you touched upon, but when we see, you know, Michael Caine and Jeremy Irons involved, the benchmark is set very high. Uh-huh. I, but I thought what Reeves did, and maybe this is like, I don't want to say like something bad with the movie, but I just thought it was very interesting. We didn't get a lot of Alfred. Sure. Like, we only got a, a small dose, and then when the scene happens where the Riddler sends the bomb to, oh, yeah. to Wayne Manor, it connected, but it wasn't like you really killed Alfred off. I mean, we didn't get a lot of Alfred, but also with the same token, we didn't get a lot of Batman as Bruce Wayne. Yes. You know, that. so that's kind of the way I chalked it up, where if there would have been more scenes with Pattinson as Bruce Wayne, we would have seen more Alfred, but there really wasn't all that much of Bruce Wayne in the movie. Yeah, because I thought when they did the hospital scene and yeah. Bruce is, like, venting, you know, Adam, and, like, he's screaming at Alfred while Alfred has oxygen hooked up through his nose. Yeah, great bedside manners. There, yeah, Bruce. which is like, Bruce, <laughs> uh, he's not going to really be up for talking right now, and you want to sit there and scream at him because the truth about the Wayne family allegedly came out that they had ties to the Falcone family. But how he found out about this was interesting because yeah. how he went about shaking down the Penguin and that whole sequence, including one of the best car chase scenes I think I've seen. Uh-huh. Stu, what was your takes for the car chase scene and that whole setup? The car chase scene was awesome, and one of the weird takeaways I had from watching it was it felt like people really driving, and whenever I see car chase scenes in a movie, they seem so like stunt drivers. They seem like these people are irrationally good at driving and they shouldn't be. And 
for whatever reason, like I can't put a finger on it exactly, but whenever I was watching this movie, it felt like the penguin was just a guy who just happened to have like a, a nice fancy, what was the BMW Mercedes? I can't remember. What I think it was, it was a Rolls Royce. Oh, okay. I think, I think it was an old, I think it was an older Rolls Royce. Okay. But he's driving it and it's fast and he's getting away from Batman, but he seems like he's a, a just a real person driving, just trying his best in the rain and the dark and traffic coming at him. And he's hitting barrels just to avoid getting killed. And he actually runs into traffic, which how often do you see that in any movie's car chase? It never happens. Come to a complete stop and honk at people. It was fantastic. Like just how realistic they made that scene for the most part. And especially when... He causes the accident where you see the fire shoot up and Colin Farrell's just laughing. He's like, ha, I got away with yeah. it. And then you just see Batman in his souped up Batmobile just come flying through the flames like, okay, here we go. Yeah, no, that was a great scene, especially since the trailers made it seem like really in- instantaneous that he went through it. But that was a great job by both the, the filming and then the editing of like, that was long and drawn out enough that you're like, oh, shit, he's not going to. Because we know it's coming from because it's been in every trailer and every TV spot. But he doesn't know that that it's long and drawn out enough that when he finally comes through the fire, it's like, oh, fuck, here we go. And I love, like, before they got going to, his car stalled. Yes. I thought that was a nice, subtle touch because of how inexperienced he is because they've already established his year, too. It's those old muscle cars. Exactly. But after the, he gets the shakedown, he teams up with Jim Gordon, who's his only ally here, and they are starting to pressure that Penguin is the rat that is working with the GCPD. Yeah. And it turns out he's not. No. And how they leave him hanging, I thought was brilliant, because they just leave him tied up. And he's like, "Hey, what am I supposed to do here?" And he goes, yeah, they "Give him a little moment where he gets to do the penguin waddle for a reason in the movie." It's like what another one of those little Easter eggs where he gets to waddle, even though he's just a regular guy in this movie. I thought that was funny, and I laughed at it in theaters. Oh, I did too. I was yeah. dying at that. And then we've come to find out that no, he wasn't. We find out, obviously, through all of this, the ties to the Falcone family and what they've done with the Waynes. Like, it's all starting to come together, and the Riddler's the one who's been placing all these clues leading Batman on for this. And the big reveal is that Carmine Falcone was the rat, and John Turturro, who played him, I thought he was very underrated about his performance for this film. Yeah. Stu, what do you thought about him as Carmine Falcone? I think he did a really good job. For some reason, John Turturro is one of those actors that every time I see him, my brain just goes like, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Why aren't you acting like that? Oh, that's such a good film. In my head, I was just like, why is the oh, brother, where art thou guy, the, the crime lord of Gotham? But no, he does a really good job. He comes across as that nice little combination of he's not imposing at all and yet he's very intimidating because he just knows what his presence is where he knows he's not going to like fist fight anybody to death but he knows the power that he holds so even though he doesn't seem particularly imposing you just have this sense of dread around his character oh i fully agree yeah no his portrayal is really good you know i haven't really seen much the actor was in so i kind of went in you know on experience with him but I, i thought he was great and he came off kind of slimy and sleazy enough that like you heard the name and obviously you know the history with the Falcone family and if you're familiar with any of the Batman lore but his portrayal was great just because he comes off and he's coming off with like the the uh fork tongue the snake's tongue the, you know parcel tongue you know where he's he's just trying to 
soothsay you a little bit and go, hey, listen, buddy, ignore ignore the dead bodies in the back. I'm taking care of things. I'm what's good for this town. And he's selling you on it enough, but there's there's just something you come leaving out of the, those meetings going, man, there's something I don't like about this guy, and I just you know just don't know what it is. And then you get to the end, you get towards the end of the movie, and you go, ah. That's what it is. I you you knew he was playing with a full hand full deck, but he wasn't showing you all of the cards yet that he was holding some of them back. And that was great on his part. Oh, I thought it was a truly smart move on him because obviously you find out that Thomas Wayne connected with him to cover up the history of Martha, who was exposed by a familiar name in the comics. A last name of Elliot. And I love how they threw up the quick blurb about hush during that. I thought that that was a smooth Easter egg. And then you see about how Falcone did what he had to do yeah. to cover up that secret. And then you find out about how he's been working with the GCPD. And then the big bombshell, which I was completely surprised at, that he's actually Selena's father. Yeah. Stu, what did you think about that reveal? Uh, I, You know, it's one of those things I just kind of expected because that's the reveal that we got in the Catwoman when in Rome book and then in batman dark victory so i'm kind of used to this idea that was one of the things i assumed that they pulled from the jeff Loeb universe of he was going to end up being her father i wasn't sure maybe you guys can shed some light on this did he know that he was her father because he seemed like he might have and then at the end i wasn't sure again because he was actually kind of skeevy with her at a few points but at the end, whenever she says, oh, dad, he doesn't seem particularly surprised by it either. I don't think so. I think he was calling her kid a lot just because it, generational thing. Hey, kid, how you doing, kid? You know, I think it's an instance like where we saw in the Joker movie. Obviously, it didn't turn out being the case. But in the Joker movie where jo- uh, his mother tried telling Thomas Wayne that, oh, this is your illegitimate. And like it just never got to him. I think this is was another instance where, like, Selena Kyle's mother tried telling him, and just because he's well-connected and he's got all these people in, in between him and the general public, it never got to him. So he might have heard whispers, he might have heard rumors, but just that's ah, one of those things you hear. Everyone, everyone's trying to get a dollar out of me. You know, I'm one of the richest guys in all the crime world. You know, but I think it was one of those things that by the end it was like, okay, two and two together, he's no idiot. It made sense. So, But no, I don't think up until the end he knew that she was his daughter. I don't think he knew. I really don't because it's just how his reaction at the very end because when Selena makes her attack on the Iceberg Lounge by herself yeah, and then Batman has to come in there too, you get the sense that, yeah, he really just had no idea what was going on. And I think he really did not suspect Selena was capable of it to make that attack and then when she was going in there i mean she almost got it done too just to see how that all played out but that was also set up all by the riddler too yeah because he te- he telegraphed it because he wanted the bird to come out in the sun and then as soon as batman brings falcone out in the spotlight he's taken out by the sniper so the body count now is at about four yep and then batman realizes like he's here and then what i thought was just such a unique move but then again this goes to show about how paul dano's portrayal of the Riddler was he basically gives himself up and goes right to the diner, which red herring to me, you know, we've seen this before where the villain willingly gives themselves up and wants to get arrested. I'm like, all right, this ain't good. No, Stu, what did you think about that whole ending scene there with Falcone dying? And then the Riddler just basically giving himself up. 
Uh, it was interesting. I like that he was literally right under a streetlight, so Batman looked up and put it all together when you bring the rat into the light. So they had brought Carmine right under a streetlight. The, the Riddler kills him, and then, yeah, they do that thing. It seems odd in that one of those things where maybe it was just done to make the movie moment, but if the Riddler's entire plan was to give himself up, why did he leave the apartment? Like, he left the apartment just so they could create a scene where everybody kind of busts in looking for him, and then just to get a phone call where it's like, oh, he's at the diner. And again, just like with the Penguin car chase scene, we just get the scene that we had seen in the trailers where they go down to the diner and get him. It seemed weird. It just seemed like one of those runtime padding moments where it was just like, He's going to give himself up. Why do we have a, a fake chase scene there? Yeah, I agree with it. I mean, that was something I was a little puzzled by, but I also thought, like, at this point, he's accomplished his goal. Yeah. Because yeah. basically he felt that Falcone was the real mayor of Gotham. And if you take him off the board, there is no Gotham. It's a weird idea, but mm -hmm. that's what I'm thinking he's trying to go through because he lets himself get arrested. We find out that it's not Edward... Uh, or, it's not Edward Nigma. It's like Edward Norton. Or uh, yeah, he's Nashton. Like Nashton. Uh, Nashton. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing if it was Edward Norton. Bring it all together <laughs> with the MCU. Oh my. And then he turns into the Hulk. Oh my God! Yeah, make that happen for the sequel. <laughs> Crisis. <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Comics. That would. But this whole scene is very interesting because yeah, it just plays into the Riddler and just how much he was a step ahead of everybody, and he lures Batman away. To the to Arkham, yeah, because what is it? He get they, they go the GCPD goes into his hideout lair apartment, whatever. They start looking through things, and Batman starts again the detective work. He starts noticing stuff on the wall, and I know. And one of the things I think was like scratched on the wall was I know who you are. And there's one last there was one last file dump because every time he kills some kills somebody from you know the socialite or like the political world of Gotham damning evidence would come out about them video photo of their improprieties and something they had done you know where they might be looked upon as a white knight or you know an angel as a savior of gotham hey they're not as clean as you would think so there's one more and they're like oh we got to figure out how to get in this and then he starts seeing the stuff around and he goes shit he knows who i am yes so once they're i believe they're blackgate prison they're not at arkham just yes blackgate this is where yeah batman's freaking out because he's like i completely telegraphed myself like he knows who i am what am I going to do now? And you actually see, I don't want to say fear. It's panic. But it's panic. And to see Batman freak out like that was a very cool nod. But even though the Riddler is just like, hey, we teamed up. We did it. Thanks, buddy. Like, how cool of a play was that? And then he's like, well, we're not done yet. And then all of a sudden it hits. Wait, you are not as smart as I thought you were. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I'm going to have to do this myself. And then when he leads Batman on, that he goes, yeah, my plan is already in place. And they go Watchmen about this, that basically the Riddler was expecting to be caught. He had his plan all set up because apparently he's been having a group of followers on the dark web that are just yeah. waiting for the moment to have Gotham cave in a la no man's land. Stu, what was your thoughts about that whole swerve there? Uh, yeah, that was interesting because the first time I saw the movie, like I said, I saw it twice. I just went into the last moment where they're in the prison together, assuming the Riddler knew that he was Bruce Wayne because he looks at him. He says Bruce Wayne and 
it wasn't actually until the second time I watched the movie that I figured out, like, oh, he doesn't know. what a, He doesn't know that he's Bruce Wayne. And that's it, it adds even more humor to the whole, like, oh, you're not as smart as I thought you were. Well, yeah, well, neither are you, Riddler. It turns out yeah. you're not as smart as I thought you were the first time either. Because I thought he had figured it all out, but it turns out he hasn't. He just thought Batman was his friend and they were going to chill out in, in prison together and watch the, the city go to hell. And... My wife and I said the exact same thing leaving the theater, and it's that, so the Riddler won, right? Because how many tens of thousands of people had to have died in Gotham City that night? Yeah. Like, you figure Gotham City has to be comparable to Chicago, New York. It has to have millions upon millions of people living there, and he just blows down the seawalls, and the entire city gets flooded, like, within minutes. Yeah. I mean, tens of thousands of people at a minimum had to have died there. Like, why is he so sad about everything at the end? It seems like you just won, guy. I don't know what more you wanted to accomplish. Everything's ruined. Dad? No, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely seemed like he won in the end. You know, it was a, it was a great twist where he shows up and starts out, well, we'll just have to watch the, the city burn. What? And then the bombs start going off, and then everyone has to evacuate to Gotham Square Garden. Notice that name. Yeah. Which, it even even from the outside, it looked a little bit like Madison Square Garden. Uh-huh. Notice that one. Yeah, it was interesting to see that, yeah, he was disappointed in the end, but he won. But it's he didn't win the way he wanted to, because it's one thing that I thought they tied into the comics as well. No matter what the Riddler does, getting Batman's approval or feeling that he one-upped Batman is all he cares about, really, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day. Like, it's so weird because, obviously, he wanted to take out Gotham because he was like, I'm working with Batman. We did this. He's on the same page as me. We're stopping the crime. Right. And then all of a sudden, once he realizes, like, Batman wasn't working with him, like, the light bulb goes on. Like, you see that flicker, and then finally it lights up, and he's like, oh, wait, never mind. You're not my friend. I want to be better than you. Like, he immediately flips that switch. And then as he's watching Gotham go up, he's like, wait, but Batman could still stop this. And that's what planted the seed in his head. And it just ties back in, like I said, how he's been written in the comics for years. His goal is he wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And if he's not, that drives him absolutely crazy. And as you see, Batman immediately is trying to save everybody he can in Gotham. They go to Gotham Square Garden, GSG. And you see how he's trying to save the political, it's election night and the new mayor is in there. And how the Riddler's followers are trying to do an assassination attempt while the city is flooding. So it's complete anarchy right now. Yep. But Batman does what Batman does best. He rises to the occasion. He's doing all he can. Obviously, he has no prep time. Nope. So he is struggling during this entire thing. And he uh, almost winds up getting killed at one point because somebody finally came up with the right idea. He's got all this armor. You're going to have to take him out with a headshot. Yep. And after he's finally taken down, after he's he's taken out, I don't know how many hundreds of followers the Riddler has, he does get bailed out by Catwoman, who makes an attempt to come back. Yep. Stu, what was your thoughts about this whole scene? Uh, so the one thing that this movie did that completely floored me, the part of this movie that I had been on the fence about whether I liked this movie or not, and then this happened, and it was just like, okay, that was amazing, is going all the way back to the beginning of the movie. You have, you, we talked about that scene where the bat signals in the sky and you have the narration of Batman going like, the symbol is there to scare people because whenever they're there, they think that I'm in the shadows. And he actually specifically says that, but I am the shadows. Mm-hmm. And then the movie ends 
with Batman jumping into this flooding stadium, lighting a flare and guiding people to safety. So you get this travel of literally saying, I am the shadows to lighting a flare and becoming the light for Gotham. So yeah, that's his character arc. I talked about how Selina Cow had an arc. That's Batman's arc. And the movie doesn't hit you over the head with it. At the end, there's not narration from Batman going, oh, I used to say I was the shadows, but then I became the light. The movie doesn't beat you over the head with it. It just lets it happen. The man who said he was the shadows lights a flare. And instead of punching things and intimidating people and being this fearsome presence, he becomes the light. He becomes the hope of Gotham. And I loved that. I loved that so much in this movie because, like I said, they did it just subtly enough that you couldn't really miss what they were doing, but they never had a character beat you over the head with it. They never had a character spell out, oh, and this is the thematic uh, moment that we're showing you here. And I just love that. I thought that was fantastic filmmaking by Reeves and the, the screenwriters. I was a huge fan of that. No, I agree 100% with everything you said. You know, when that moment happens and he works to get the people out of the flooding water and he strikes up the, the flare, as soon as, and this was brilliant uh, cinematography because they didn't just do it with a shot of him just walking in, in with the flare and walking through the water. They went with the top-down shot mm. and they specifically lit it so that you could see all of the people, multiple people, probably north of 30 people, all following behind him with a little bit of a gap, not a huge gap, but enough of a gap to show he's leading them through the darkness. And I literally sat there in the theater and went lighting a light in the darkness. And it was probably my favorite shot of the entire movie because that it, like Stu said, that is who the character is. He is obviously this guy who goes through the streets at night, beats the shit out of guys and tries to keep the city safe. But as he said it in the beginning of the movie, I can't be everywhere. And they showed in the beginning the, the one store, you know, one a convenience store was getting robbed and mm -hmm. he couldn't be there, you know. But he is ultimately the light in the darkness that gives the average citizens that really can't do anything about it a little bit of hope to say, yeah, things suck. But, hey, there's somebody out there looking out for us and keeping us safe. Well, that's the whole symbolism of Batman, that he gives the people of Gotham hope. Like, no matter what, if they see that signal go up, they are not feeling safe, but they're at ease a little bit because they feel that he is out there watching. And I thought they really demonstrated this very well. I thought they took a little long when he was hanging on the wire there before he falls in the water. Sure. I thought they drug that out just a little bit too much. But I will say I did mark out when I saw him shoot up with Venom. To get that adrenaline oh, boost. Yeah, notice that one. I was like, oh wait, oh okay. We're we're gonna go here this soon? Okay. And if they're gonna do a narration, they needed Kevin Conroy to do it. <laughs> like I like I remember back at Gotham Square Garden and just go from there. Like that would have been so freaking perfect. And how they even did the scene, like I say, he winds up saving the day, so to speak, because he is inspiring the city. The city even though it has now lost thousands of people because of the Riddler's action, there's still a weird sense of hope and that they will come back. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that Batman, like we say, is trying to instill in, in Gotham. That at the end of the day, he loves that city so much, he is trying to do everything he can, even though it's a hopeless situation, 
to make it better. Also, can we take a note and just I didn't I can't take credit for this. I saw this online, but in the beginning of the movie, it starts on October 31st and then it and by the end of the movie it says it took place over the course of like 6 or 7 days or whatever. And the bombing and attacks in Gotham took place on Guy Fox night. Remember remember the 5th of November? Oh shit. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, I saw that online and went, "Ooh, that's really good." Oh, there are so many well-placed Easter eggs throughout this entire movie. Uh-huh. The Court Owls one is dope, too. Yeah. I'm fingers crossed for that one. But as the movie ends, we see Selena takes off, even though she did play an impactful role, and Gotham is starting to get back on their feet. And well, then, they're trying to. Well, they're trying to, but like I say, it's going to be a slow build to that. But this is where the legacy of Batman is really going to take over, and when we see him next time on the big screen with Pattinson in the role, you're going to see a more seasoned Batman from this experience. But the scene that I think got everybody buzzing is back at, Arth- at Arkham. The Riddler is talking to somebody through a cell. Mm-hmm. And, Stu, I want to get your opinion on this. When we find out who it is, it's a familiar face, so to speak. What was your takeaways from this? Uh, my takeaways are the same takeaway I've had with all Batman stories for the last like 10 to 20 years, and that's that the Joker is a crutch, and we don't need him all the time. You can tell Batman stories without the Joker. Matt Reeves, you can do it. Anyone can do it. I, I'm just jokered out. Heath Ledger was the Joker. He gave the performance of the Joker that we're always going to live with forever. I never needed the Joaquin Phoenix movie. I never needed Jared Leto as the Joker. Mm. I don't need whatever this universe is going to do with the Joker. He's just a crutch at this point. You talked about it. Batman has one of the three best rogues galleries in all of comics. You don't just have to keep coming back to this character. I like that they kind of set up this idea of like, maybe they're going to have a whole rogues gallery thing and Joker and Riddler are going to gather people and, and have friends and be bad guys. But it's like, I, I don't need any more of this character. Let's do a Batman series without the Joker for once. I was certainly surprised by it, you know, just because I figured at some point once once it came out that they've got, they want to do sequels to this. I'm like, all right, at some point we're probably going to see him. I didn't necessarily think it would be this movie, but I also didn't hate it because they did enough with this movie in setting up the sequels, you mentioned the Venom, you know, they, the Court of Owls reference, the Hush reference, the Joker reference. They did enough with this that they're not enclosing themselves into, okay, we only introduced this one villain, so that's the next villain we have to do for the next movie. They've got enough there that, like, if they want to come back and, and do a Joker in the next movie, they've got an avenue to. If they want to come back and do a Venom you know, or Bane, they've got that avenue. Court of Owls, they've got that avenue. You know, so I like that they're introducing these characters in these possible situations. But if nothing ever comes of them, I'm fine with that. Because ultimately, as fans, when we sit here and watch these movies, to us, they're living, breathing universes. And we're sitting there going, oh, I wonder what they might be doing after the movie starts, before the movie starts, while the movie's going on. You know, it's just one of those things that I feel gives it a living, breathing thing. And I didn't hate it, but, like, if nothing comes of it, I'm all right with that. I thought it was interesting... I mean, I'm not super over the moon about it. Um, I mean, Barry Keoghan from uh, the Eternals fame is going is uh, it was the Joker in this one. So, to whether he's going to be around for long term, if they decide to go long term, I thought it was interesting to see him show up. Um, I'm really kind of curious now if maybe the end of Reeves' trilogy would be the War of Jokes and Riddles from Tom King. That story. 
because that would be something I could see happening, especially when he's like, oh, you'd be a friend like me and then see how that story was played out. That has some possibilities. I mean, that would tie in a lot of people. So, I mean, that would kind of make sense to a certain degree. But if they don't ever go near the Joker for this franchise, I'm okay with that as well. I'm not going to be upset about this. Because like the points we've touched upon here, there's so many Easter eggs for that rogues gallery that you don't need to do the Joker on the big screen. No. You can do a Two-Face story, because they did set that up, Yep, and really have him not be the side character split in time with the Riddler, have him be his own character and do it something in Gotham. You can do something like that. If you want to go Bane, I mean, I would not go Bane this early. No. I mean, if you really want to try doing something crazy, I would do Nightfall, like the real Nightfall for the third movie. Ooh. And, and then you can tie in everybody there and go crazy as one. As long as we don't see Azrael. I don't need to see Jean-Paul Valley in that suit. <laughs> I do not need to see that on the big screen. Hell no. But there are so many endless possibilities with this that with this movie, the playbook is wide open. And Reeves has shown that he can tie in elements of different comic stories and not have it be not fully developed. Like I think one of the biggest problems that we've always had with Batman vs. Superman is the first half of the movie is The Dark Knight Returns from Frank Miller, and then we go Death of Superman. And it really conflicts on what you're trying to tell. Reeves really sprinkled in so many different elements from different stories that he made it work, and that if he decides to go in a certain route, fans would be okay with it. Because he didn't do it so overbearing, but there's that possibility. They're like, okay, if you want to go do a Hush storyline, that could work. Right. If you want to do Two-Face, that could work. And I think that that's just something that was really such a strong point to this movie that when we get some more movies coming from this franchise, it's going to be nothing but a win. Stu, before we wrap up about the Batman, was there anything that stood out to you that you really did not like about this movie? Nothing I would say I really didn't like to a huge degree. I thought the movie tried to do too much. I was really invested in all of the Catwoman, Carmine Falcone, all of that stuff, the dynamic with her character arc and everything that was going on. And I honestly thought the Riddler was the weaker aspect of the movie to the point where once they really? killed Falcone and Catwoman was gone for a while, I thought like, oh, and now we're on to the stuff I don't care about as much. A lot of times when you think of Batman movies, with the possible exception of Batman Begins, you think of them by their villain. I mean, Batman mm-hmm. Forever, you think of Jim Carrey and, and Tommy Lee Jones, for better or worse. Yeah. You think of Jack Nicholson. You think of Heath Ledger. This will just be the second Batman movie after Batman Begins, where, like, five years from now, when I think of it, I will have to be like, who was the bad guy in that movie? Oh, yeah, it was the Riddler. Like, it'll take me a second to remember who it was. So... I thought he was weaker, but how can you complain with a movie that gives more attention to the actual character of Batman and plays him in such a different way than we've ever seen before? So I just wish this movie hadn't tried to do so much and shoehorned in this Riddler thing where the whole movie feels like it's building towards a reveal. Oh, we're going to we're going to find out what the Riddler story is and it's going to be this big blockbuster thing on why he's doing what he's doing and it just turns out to be not that, not that at all. <laughs> no, uh, I so I didn't care much for the Riddler himself and his storyline, but everything else was good. I think the only thing for me that maybe was a little bit of a negative was not enough Bruce Wayne time. It didn't need to be a whole ton more, but just it felt like just a way too much, way too little. You know, I could have used a couple extra minutes of Bruce Wayne time. The only thing that really kind of stood out to me was Jim Gordon. I was not 
a fan of how he was portrayed. Like I love Jeffrey Wright. I thought he was he did a a solid job as Jim Gordon. But like when I mean how he's portrayed, how he was delivering lines just kind of seemed like it felt like too superhero esque. Mm-hmm. Like just the delivery was throwing me off a little bit. And plus, for being just two years into Batman, Jim Gordon has way too much trust in him. And especially for somebody that acts yeah. as, as reckless. He specifically tells Batman, you're the only one I trust. And I was like, really? That's that's an odd thing for a cop to say. Yeah. like, And, and that's why I'm sitting there going like, okay, I don't really understand where we're going with this. And just how like there's so much blind trust in him. And especially as you saw how reckless he Batman was at the beginning of the film. Like, how is Jim Gordon saying like, hey, that's my that's my partner right there. That's my guy. And, like, being calm when he's going in, busting in through the Iceberg Lounge and just giving no cares if he's, like, going to be killing anybody. It just was such a weird portrayal in the sense of how the script was run. I had no issues with how Jeffrey Wright acted as him except for just the delivery of the lines because it just, for me, it, it just sounded like they were too forced to be, like, too overdramatic and, like, too superhero-esque. So, like, it didn't, it didn't click with me as much. Like I said, I had no problem with like what he was doing, but I think I like how they wrote him in the film. It's just like, I don't know. It just it didn't set well with me. But I'm thinking they'll probably fix that as they go on further because now you'll have that trust built up. And especially when he was trying to help him break out of the, the GCPD there, and we saw the flying back cape too, which I thought it was interesting. Yeah. The uh, parachute cape. I don't know. Stu, what did you think of that? Uh, my wife didn't like it at all. She was like, why did he turn into a flying squirrel? I don't understand. Yeah, I was the same uh, way. It's, it's like one of those base jumping costumes. I get it. It seems like a realistic thing that that character would kind of have to have. And he's even basically completely inept at it where he, I don't know how he survives his landing. Mm-hmm. But boy, he, he does a really bad job landing out of it. And you just think like, all right, so yeah, this is a character who's still learning. It's a realistic thing that he has. And it's a realistic landing that he has with, you know, I guess with as much armor as he's wearing, he would survive it. But, oh, that seemed really painful for him. I mean, I didn't mind it. It's, it's an early prototype for something he knows he needs. Why spend the time figuring, you know, in, early in his career, why spend the time figuring out how to make this thing when something I already need exists? I'll just go out and buy a black one, you know, and obviously it doesn't work out. So if, if he comes back in the next movie and needs something similar, I imagine it'll be like, you know, Tony Stark in the MCU movies where he takes his faults and improves upon them. So if he has to make another one of those escapes in the next movie, won't be the same way without the same results. Yeah, so it, it will be interesting. Like I said, that kind of threw me off. But I think they really wanted to emphasize about how really inexperienced he was. And I think it definitely threw a little nod to the 66 series, just with all the bat gadgets, even though he didn't have bat shark repellent. That would have been fantastic, though. So final thoughts on the movie, Stu? Uh, I really liked it. Like I said, I saw it the first time. And if I was scoring this like on Letterboxd out of five, the first time I saw it, I gave it a three out of five. The second time I saw it, I bumped that up to a three and a half. So, I mean, I, I really liked it. It went from a good movie to a very good movie for me. A little bit longer than it needs to be. I'm not buying the hype that it's the best Batman movie ever. I think the Christopher Nolan trilogy, like all three of them, are still better than this. But I would say this is better than 89. I would say this is better than Batman Forever. It's better than anything else for me. I love the idea of 
recluse, nobody likes him Bruce Wayne because I don't know that we've ever seen that version before. Bruce Wayne is always billionaire playboy who, like Christian Bale, he just throws money at a hotel so that the, the models that are with him can swim in a pool. And boy, this Bruce Wayne is not that at all. It's a really daring take on the character that I liked. It had some flaws, like I said, in its length and its villain, but I, I thought the story, the cinematography, and I can't say enough about what they do with the ending, with the flair, how thematic that was. I really liked it. Uh, this, to me, is one of the best Batman movies they've ever done. I've only seen it the one time, so i got to see it at least one more time before I make that definitive placement. You know, it. And I will say, you know, it's one of the best comic book movies of all time. I'll put it in that Logan discussion. I'm not saying it's better than Logan, but it's in that same class I would put Logan in that, like... It's fantastic. You don't need to know everything. Because I was telling somebody years ago when, after we saw Logan that they heard all the hype about it. They're like, oh, do I really need to know anything about Logan before I go see it? I kind of want to go see it. I haven't seen any of the X-Men movies. I go, And I told them, do you know who Wolverine is? Yeah. Do you know who Professor Xavier is? Yeah. You're good. Go. You know, with this movie, do you know who Batman is? Yeah. Okay. You're good. Go. Like, it's in that class where, like, you don't need to be a comic book fan to see this movie. You don't need to be a Batman fan to see this movie. You know, I loved everything about it. Pattinson's portrayal was great. And even I found out in an article uh, a couple days after we saw the movie, one of my favorite Batman movies was a hot big influence on his portrayal in this movie, that being Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, He did an interview where, where he said, quote, Batman is someone more unstable. If you read between the lines, it's actually very sad. In my opinion, the only other film to achieve this is the animated film Batman Mask of the Phantasm. When I saw it, it clicked. Being Batman is kind of cur- a kind of curse. It's a burden. I don't think we've ever really seen that in a live film, close quote. So the fact that Mask of the Phantasm, because you really think about Mask of the Phantasm, it's kind of like the inverse of this movie. It's a it's a villain or the or the antagonist taking out the crime world. The crime boss is this. It's an antagonist taking out you know the the political world. You know, so I can't believe I didn't pick up on the kind of parallels there. But I just loved everything about it. Seriously, go see this movie. It's awesome. This movie hit on all marks for me. I thought that they made the Riddler into a realistic threat. I loved Paul Dano's performance as the Riddler. I put it up there with Heath Ledger's Joker, if not even a little better in my book. Just because for what you have in the comics, he really made his own version. And that's the one we're going to be benchmarking now till the next one tries to imitate it and be better which I don't know if somebody's going to be able to do because they really captured the essence of what the Riddler was supposed to be about, and they really made him such a wild card in this that you never knew what he was thinking, but now at the end of the movie, he has a direction, he has a purpose. So I thought I really loved what they did there. Zoe Kravitz did phenomenal as Selena Kyle. I'm all for a a solo movie if they don't want to do a a show on uh, HBO Max. Either one, give it to me. I think she definitely deserves it. In fact, Colin Farrell's performance did so well, they're now spinning a a Penguin show out for him. And if they want to do a Gotham Central show with Jeffrey Wright as the head, I'm okay with that. In fact, I would love to see them do that with the Joker instead of a movie. So initially there were plans to do a GCPD HBO Max TV show that has since morphed into like an Arkham Asylum horror show. Hmm. So there there were plans... There were plans to do the the I they they officially announced it, but I'd read there were plans to do a Colin Farrell Penguin show, but then there was also plans to do like a Jim Gordon GCPD TV show on HBO Max. It's now been reported that that's now morphed into like an Arkham Asylum horror style show. I don't know what I exactly feel about that. 
to be honest. Yeah, I would rather have a Gotham Central show <coughs> just because I love the run of the book. Yeah. I love Renee Montoya as a character. I'd like to see them do some stuff with her in this universe. I mean, you could definitely do stuff with Arkham, don't get me wrong. It could certainly be great in this universe, but hearing that news, that feels like going from an A-plus idea to, like, an A-minus idea. <laughs> yeah, it just it all depends on what they want to do, and especially if they want to try tying into Martha Wayne's background, which I'm like, ah, just... It wouldn't be setting. Like, I think if they went GCPD, I think that would have been great. And like I say, to have the the issues like where the Joker is in there where you never see Batman, but you see everybody else dealing with him, I think would be great. And like I say, I, I don't mean to fault, you know, how they did Jim or Detective Gordon in this one because he's obviously not Lieutenant Gor- or Commissioner Gordon yet. But I just think that, like, for being so young, I think that that would, might have been the only misstep. But it's not like a, one that completely misses the mark and ruins the movie by any means. I think that they were really trying to illustrate how inexperienced Batman was and how new this world was going to be. And they nailed it out of the park. Everything about this, you definitely need to go see. It is three hours, but trust me, it'll be the best three hours you spend in the movies this month. Bar none. You heard our takes. Now we want to hear yours, ODPH Society. Hit us up on that hashtag, hashtag ODPHpod. Matt Reeves, the Batman. What's your take? Hit us up. Let us know. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey all, I'm Frank. Join me and my friends as we talk about all things geek. Here at Geek Freaks Podcast, we go over the weekly news of everything in geekdom. From movies to TV, video games, and comic books. We also have a growing YouTube community. Join us as we go over everything in your geek life and share in the love of geekdom. Coming back for another segment on this edition of the ODPH Podcast with special guest Stu from the Stu World Order Podcast. Joining us, absolutely, make some noise for him. Come on, Pat. (laughs) Next on the agenda, we have to talk about our favorite show on the CW right now. Kung Fu. Well, that is a great show. Oh, okay. Yes, it is a great show. But that is number two compared to the greatness that is Superman and Lois. When this show was first announced, I don't think we all thought this was going to be this good. No. I thought it would be okay. okay like, we kind of have to wait and see because, you know, the CW shows have kind of been very hit or miss. You know, sometimes you shoot the arrow, you get a bullseye. Sometimes, you know, you wind up back in time and it's all a mess. It's how it rolls. But this show has been hitting on all cylinders. Season two has not had a slowdown. Stu, now, you have not been watching this show, correct? I have not. I, I'm not a huge TV watcher. Uh, Unless my wife makes me watch something, I pretty much just stick to watching movies. And we got through the first four or five episodes of this show in season one and loved it. I mean, I I have nothing bad to say about the show. We really liked it. It's just one of those things where, like, maybe something else was released that we really wanted to watch. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was Doom Patrol, I want to say. So we started watching Doom Patrol and we kind of forgot this was there. And by the time we remembered, oh, what about that Superman and Lois show? We had missed four episodes and it was just like... I'm not going to go back and watch this. So I have really liked the show when I've seen it, but I have not been following it lately. But you have seen this episode we're going to be talking about, correct? Yes, yes. All right. So that being said, folks, we are going to be doing the countdown as we always do. We are going to be talking about the latest episode of The CW, Superman and Lois, entitled Antihero. So you know the deal by now after the countdown. It's spoiler talk. So in that said, in three, two. One. Stu, what did you think? 
Um, so obviously I'm coming into this as the seventh episode in season two. I haven't seen anything else that's going on. This was less Superman and his family and more Superman and I guess his Kryptonian family because he has a brother now and he has a hologram of his mother wandering around. So I wasn't quite sure about that. What I really liked about this show in season one was the the dynamic of the Kents. And we get a lot of that with Jonathan and Jordan and Lois, but Superman is pretty much off doing his own thing, dealing with other things. And I guess Bizarro's around, which is always fun. Uh, and I, I, I guess they're doing a voice thing with him where he's talking backwards, I guess kind of like Zatanna would be mm-hmm. if he were casting a spell. Uh, it, it's interesting. I don't know a lot of what's going on here. I don't know who this General Anderson guy is who looks like he makes a complete heel turn in this episode. Like he, I guess, goes AWOL from the military at the end and he's going to go off and do super villain things. Um it's interesting, as with what I thought would be the case with this series, I'm much more invested in the Kents than, you know, Superman fighting the military, but that does seem to be still the case from where season one was. No, yeah, I thought it was a great episode, you know, it was, of course, directed by Agents of, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. own Elizabeth Henstridge. Yep. Uh, no, I thought it was a great episode and loved every minute of it. For what they've done this season to do the quick recap is Superman has moved his whole family to Smallville after his mother had passed. Yep. They've taken over the farm, and Smallville has suddenly become like the hotbed of trouble since he's arrived there. Season one, you find out that a person named Morgan Edge is actually his half-Kryptonian brother, Tal Rowe. Yep. Which is a very cool reveal that I don't believe we've talked about in the comics. So this no. is like completely uncharted water to my knowledge. No, from what I remember, because I know we discussed that last season, they've there's only been like a brief mention of him having any, not Kara, you know, having like an actual brother, but like nothing ever fully fleshed out. Right. So that was pretty much the basis of why he was at Smallville to get away from these problems because he finds out one of his sons now has superpowers like he does. So it's a weird dynamic, but it's a one that they really tie back to the family adjusting to coming to Smallville from Metropolis. It's been a struggle, and you meet a lot of the characters in town. They're really kind of given their own dynamic to this show, which is something I really think they love, or I love about the show, and I think it's something they really add a lot to. When we jump into Season 2, though, how they've been teasing this, is we have the DOD, which was formerly ran by Superman's father-in-law, Sam Lane, who has now stepped back and has this Lieutenant Anderson running completely crazy with it. Yeah. And he's doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes because there's a new form of kryptonite called X-Kryptonite that is harvested in the mines of Smallville that they track down. And there's somebody that's in the mine that is causing this psionic attack on Superman no matter what he does. The original tease, Stu, was this was supposed to be Doomsday. And even one of the producers. I remember that, because wasn't he wearing the original Doomsday get-up? Yep, the yep. costume and the, the arm bound and everything. I remember seeing that, and I remember somebody eventually coming in and saying, like, oh, they made it Bizarro, not Doomsday. Yeah, we even got swerved by one of the producers. One of the producers in an interview or something said, oh, yeah, by episode three or four, three, three we'll see Doomsday. And we're like, oh, far, okay. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you see the suit tear and it's a battered Superman suit and the S is backwards and we're all like, we're going bizarro. Okay. (laughs) 
like we all geeked out because we're like, okay, I yeah. can't remember a live action version of Bizarro ever. No, there hasn't been. No. And just the animated show, and like you touched on, he's a fun character. And just to see, like, okay, you're going to make him a big bad for a season? Okay, you have my interest. Meanwhile, the rest of Smallville is just completely crazy. There's a political scheme going on that uh, Lana Lang is trying to become mayor, and there's some very, very nasty dirt coming out about her husband's affair. Politics are dirty. Yes. And then you have, I would say, I got to admit, this is probably the weakest element of the story for me, is they're doing the love affair between Lana's kid, Sarah, and the Kent's, uh, Jordan Kent, and... It's like they're really trying to push that to the forefront of the show. And sometimes, like, it's just like you're burying the other storylines going on, which are more in, intriguing. Like, I always say the all-star of the show is Jonathan Kent, played by Jordan Elsass, who now is, like, he's the only member of the family that doesn't have powers. And he's sitting there, like, and he can't handle that he's now second fiddle to his brother because in Metropolis, he was the all-state quarterback. He was he was the big man on campus. And now he's not. And how he's trying to adjust to this is he starts taking ex-kryptonite because his girlfriend is apparently a dealer. Yeah. Which is like, okay, this is a really cool curveball. Let's see where we go with it. And how this episode starts off is actually a wild thing because they are in school and his girlfriend is talking about like, you know, you looked great, you know, in the game. Here's some more ex-kryptonite. And he's like, I need to get off this mm-hmm. because this is causing nothing but problems. And sure enough, as he's trying to push it away, here comes the principal with drug-sniffing dogs, which is interesting that they can smell kryptonite. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That... It, it doesn't seem like this stuff would be around long enough for them to be able to train the dogs on that that quickly. Yeah, that, that, that was the first thing I thought. I'm like, how I, is this working? I got to admit, I did not think of that until this very second. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, and of course, and Jonathan, and being complete Jonathan too, is like, oh, I'll just hide it in my coat. They'll believe me. They'll never investigate me. I'm the star quarterback. And then the dog starts barking, yeah, and he like, shit. I'm a good kid. I'm a good, good kid. kid. I'm the star. Look at me. I'm, yeah. the, I'm the star quarterback. They'll never investigate me. The dog starts barking, and he shits his pants. Yeah, it's absolutely epic. <laughs> and this is why I say he's he's the most interesting character on the show because every time he tries doing something good, oh, he fails. He fails epically. Like, even last season, because they introduced uh, John Henry Irons on the show from an alternate timeline. And they were kind of teasing Injustice, too, which was, mm-hmm. which was a whole different ball of wax. But a very good one, though. Like, you see, Jonathan's been really trying to be a hero and do the right thing, but yet he keeps failing. And then when he's sent home from school and almost expelled, Lois has to go deal with him. And I thought they had a great dynamic between Elizabeth Tolick and him that you really kind of see where the show's essence is, like you touched upon. It's all about the Kents. And when we have these moments, I think this is one of the stronger acted moments of the show. Yeah, I would yeah, I would say yeah, so. Was, oh, go ahead. No, no, by all means. Oh, yeah, she was really powerful in that scene. I, I love the dynamic with her where she really does have the sense of a real mother in that situation who, as Jonathan said, he's a good kid and she's really taken aback by what's going on. But you see the struggles of, you know, what having teenagers is and is he becoming something that he didn't used to be? I mean, that's what being a teenager is, is changing who you are. And she loves him and she wants to put faith in him, but she also has this whole sense of, is he outgrowing the kid that I remember? And I mean, she she's very well acted in these scenes. 
Yeah, she's been a rock star this season, especially her storyline is kind of interesting because she's investigating. Well, actually, her reputation came into question because she did a story about Allie, who is the leader of, well, let's face it, it's a cult. It's a cult. Yeah, no matter how you want to spin it, they're a cult. And Lois's sister was connected to that cult. She She was the informant. Yeah. And how her sister Lucy, who was actually Jenna Dewan from the Supergirl show, uh, came back for this season too, and she's been playing her. And how basically Lucy Lane almost died because of this. Yep. So now Allie has now come after Lois to discredit her, and that's been kind of the story that's been taking up most of her time. So to see her get back to the family sense, I thought it was a great scene to happen. Yeah. And especially trying to explain what's going on with Clark who this Lieutenant Anderson has been really trying to drive the point that Superman works for the U.S. government. He does not work for the world. Yep. So the underlying thought of this season has been truth, justice in the American way versus truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. What side do you think Superman falls on? And obviously it's better tomorrow because he's always been somebody for the world, not just the U.S. Well, Lieutenant Anderson can't handle this, and he's done everything from trying to manufacture his own Superman, which went exactly as it sounds. Yeah. And two are dead. One's in uh, One, ICU. Yeah, well, I think one's in a wheelchair or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because they tried running up on Bizarro, and Bizarro was just, like, wiping Stop the floor there, with everybody. citizen. Yeah. It ended as badly as you would thought. So now Superman, since he's not willing to give up the information on Bizarro, has been captured because at the end of the last episode, Lieutenant Anderson is shooting kryptonite bullets at him. Yeah, captured and arrested and charged with treason. Yeah, with treason against the United yeah. States. Yeah. Yeah, how- talked about them trying to make Superman a part of the military or whatever. I was like, they're charging Superman with treason. I don't understand. Has he sold secrets to somebody? What has he treasoned? Uh, his his treason is existence. I mean, there's one episode. I think it was yeah. I think it was either last. Yeah, it was last episode. You know, he's at the funeral for the two uh, super powered soldiers who passed away. And he, with his super hearing, hears an incident going on in, in Russia. And he's like, oh, I got to leave. I got to I got to take off. You know, sorry. And so uh, the lieutenant says to, like, his attache or whoever is, like, working with him, find out where he's going. And so they track where he's going. And it's he's just simply, it's an avalanche, you know, coming down on a town in Russia. He stops the avalanche, and, hey, everyone's happy to see him. The attache goes back to Anderson and goes, oh, he went to Russia and stopped a, a town from getting buried alive in an avalanche. And the lieutenant just instantly goes, He's against America. He went and helped an average town. Yeah. It's a wild scenario he's trying to spin. This is like, man, you are not going to win this at all, especially if you're trying to recruit Superman to your side, accusing him of treason against the United States is not the play. And there's been so many instances of just the lieutenant going, why doesn't he want to work with me? He's always working against me. And then you see the shit he does that like, okay, why would you, why would Superman ever trust you? You're a new guy. He's got no experience with you. You turned around and took this new form of kryptonite and made superpower beings behind his back and didn't tell him. Yeah. It's like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's, that's part of the course. Join our team. We're great. Benefits are awesome. We have we have brownies. Yes. Oh, they have brownies. I mean, that would have been a game changer. But then when they awaken, here he comes to in prison. He's actually in the same cell as his brother. And his brother's like, uh, what the fuck did you do? Yeah, he's like, okay, how did you get here? And I kept on expecting that TikTok video, like, you want to know how I got here? And <laughs> it just goes right into it. 
I was waiting on that. Funny, funny story about that. I'm watching this show, and like I said, I, I didn't know that he was the Edge character from the first season. I didn't know who that character was. I genuinely, when Superman woke up in there and started talking to that character, I thought he was a figment of Superman's imagination. Oh, that would have been awesome. There was an actual person there until at some point the military comes in, and for a while they're only talking to Superman. And the brother character standing in the background, and I'm like, oh, yeah, because he's not actually there. And then they address him and start talking to him, and I was like, oh, shit, that's a real person. <laughs> that would have been amazing if it was a hallucination. Like, I probably thought it would have been better. Because I, because I'm sitting there the entire time, I'm like, you're locking in two of the most dangerous people in the world. You've ticked them off. You don't think they're going to try breaking out together. And then you, you barely stopped one Kryptonian. What are you going to do against two? But this is why Anderson is who Anderson is, because after he basically strong arms Superman into giving him information, because he he has like a kryptonite, what is it, a collar? It's like a, yeah, something, some weird thing. Yeah, it was like some weird device on Talro. He's basically like, I'm going to kill him if you don't tell me where Bizarro is. Superman does give him a location, and it's the destroyed Fortress of Solitude that's in Antarctica. So meanwhile, while this is going on, Tal Rowe comes up with a great idea, like, okay, we're going to get out of here. I got a plan. Follow me. And, of course, they escape, which Anderson, by this point, is in, in the Antarctic and going, wait, what's going on? Wait, this this went wrong? How? And, meanwhile, they take off back to Tal Rowe's fortress, which is in the middle of a desert. And this is where Bizarro is, and they're getting a little more information. And this is where Bizarro is, like, giving the life story of Tal Rowe and basically saying about how Tal Rowe had a wife and that was the only person who was trying to stop him. So I'm almost wondering if Tao Ro was married to Allie mm, at maybe, some point. Maybe. Like, that was the kind of takeaway I had with it. Because I'm sitting there like, they keep on making a point about how she was trying to kill him. And then I'm like, wait a sec. Well, Bizarro's been trying to kill her the entire time in the season. That might deal. But as this is all unfolding, you have Anderson decide to go complete Bane here. Start injecting X kryptonite because that's always works. Load up on weapons and go and attack. Like, Stu, what was your thoughts about this scene going on? Uh, so I was confused about the X kryptonite because it apparently makes human beings Superman, but it was also really hurting Bizarro. Does the X kryptonite, what does it do to Superman? Because it's one of those things where it's like, well, it's doing something to Bizarro, so I don't know if I can inherently trust that means anything because he's Bizarro. I mean, it could be just because it's having the opposite effect on him. But yeah, so what is this X kryptonite? Is it good for people, bad for Superman? Is that what I'm getting? I don't think it does anything to Superman. You know, he's never really come into contact with it from what I can remember. And the thing they've done with Bizarro in the show is... Is he's the opposite of Superman, duh. But Superman has heat vision, Bizarro has ice vision. Superman has ice breath, Bizarro has heat breath. You know, so I don't think it does anything to Superman. Like, it's, it's whatever. So the inverse of that is it's really bad for Bizarro. Yeah, they... Yeah, they, they not Bizarro's day. Oh, yeah, Bizarro is just absolutely getting the worst end of any situation here possible. And with the X Kryptonite, like, they haven't really touched upon it really was Superman too much. Like it, it kind of, it did weaken him a little bit, but it wasn't like as strong as green kryptonite. And the one thing too, which I've always been waiting to see now is I know Jonathan has Kryptonian DNA in him. So, but he's taken it and he feels fine. So I don't exactly know how that all kind of plays out 
Because I know that they were just really trying to mine that last season. And obviously when they were having the fight earlier this year at the mines, like Superman wasn't affecting that whole mine is covered in uh, X-Kryptonite. So it's kind of a weird thing they haven't explained. So I think we're going to find out a little later as the season goes on. Because obviously I think Jordan's either going to take it or Superman is. One of the two is. But Anderson oh, okay. takes it. But Anderson takes it here and gets into a crazy fight. He takes out Talro. Allegedly, he kills Bizarro, but I'm thinking that's not going to stay dead for long because, well, it's comics. It's reasons. Yeah. So they, Superman leaves Bizarro because he thinks he's dead. He flies Talro to the sun, trying to heat him up with you know the yellow sun powers, which it looks like it works a little bit, and then he drops him off back at prison. And Anderson takes off because, well... He now has a warrant out for his arrest because Sam Lane called in some favors and called into the head of the DEO, Hardcastle, I believe. Something like that, yeah. And said, hey, do you know one of your guys tried charging Superman with treason? Uh, to borrow the phrase from wrestling, you fucked up, you fucked up, you fucked up. <laughs> yes. So he takes off, and then we go back to seeing Jonathan Kent you know, coming to terms that he might have to get expelled from school, but he won't rat out his girlfriend. And then there's a lot of shift to Lana and her story. And Stu, what was your takeaway with Lana addressing the crowd of Smallville? Because what she's been doing is basically deflecting all the negative press about the exposed affair. Uh, her speech was really good. You have the the guy she's running against is giving the speech, and he's got this, you know, home down, hometown, I'm from Smallville, Kansas, I have family values, blah, 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 and he's giving the speech about family values, and he's like, oh, you and I go to church together and sing, and you and I went to third grade together, and we've grown up together. And then Lois, or, or Lois, and then Lana busts in and says like, yeah, you know what you don't do if you're claiming to be family values and part of somebody's family? You don't drag somebody's personal family issues out into the public and harass them over it. So it was a really empowering moment for her. And it's one of those things, like, I love comic books. I love fiction in general where we can look at politics and say, oh, this is what politics is. There's somebody doing a bad thing and somebody pointing out that they're doing a bad thing. When in real life, it would just be like, you wouldn't have speeches like that. You would just be like, I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a Republican. Just vote based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I... In this, you actually have morals. You actually have people making a stand. Who cares about what their stances are? It's, you know, what kind of person they are. But in the real world, it's just like, vote for my ticket. Exactly. No, I thought they played the scene off very well. And I think that Lana's story is now finally starting to take off and go somewhere, which I'm, I'm happy to see because I don't think that she's had a lot of screen time with, like, a real big story as much so in the first season as she does now. And I think that's one thing that this show is really trying to do is give everybody else outside of the Kents, a little more time on screen. And we're not getting so much of Sarah and Jordan, mm -hmm. which I'm completely fine with. But as the... I did really like Sarah's moment in this show, though, um, or this episode where I guess the dad has left the Lang family, or I guess... Or she was throwing... He was throwing out. And, but her, her dad has left, and she's very mad at her dad and won't have a relationship. And then she meets up with that friend of hers, and they have this discussion, and it's... It's kind of like the moral lesson of the episode, but it just really worked for me in that, you know, like, hey, they're adults. They're going through their own thing. Don't throw this all away. Anything you might ever have with your dad 
because of what you're feeling right now. And then you see at the end that Sarah goes back up to her dad and after he's been trying to get in touch with her all episode. I thought that was interesting. I mean, I certainly would like that more than whatever they're doing with her and Jordan that you're not into. Yeah, I agree. Like, now that they're really kind of diving into, like, the effects of the affair, I think that they're really getting a lot of good moments out of the Cushing family here on the screen. Pat, what do you think? No, yeah, it it's definitely was a very powerful speech and was one that I think, you know, it's been a lot of negative press for, for Lana going on lately with the, the affair, especially the affair coming to light in the middle of uh, the quinceanera, mm-hmm. you know, so definitely a powerful moment and, and great writing, too, you know, for that whole scene. Absolutely. And then the final shot, too, is when Anderson confronts Allie because he has nowhere else to turn. And when did he steal the pendant? That was my only question. I figure he, I figure he had, mm, that's a good question. Yeah, because this pendant that Bizarro had and they stole from him when the supermen of America, as they were known as, yep. tried uh, confronting him. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, you think the Jericho Appreciation Society is a bad name? Yeah, this one was right up there. Well, but yeah, last night's dynamite. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, this moment, though, he steals the. He has the pendant on him, and apparently, if you put these two pendants together, you more or less become a god. Now, I've heard a lot of different theories about this, but now that Allie has what she needs to basically ascend, things are going to get really interesting of how this is all going to play out. So, I'm excited to see what happens. Stu, final thoughts on the episode. It's a good episode. I li- I really like this show. I think when you're going through the annals of actors who've played Clark Kent Superman, I think Tyler Hoechlin just climbs and climbs and climbs to the point where I don't like the movies, but Henry Cavill did a great job. Christopher Reeve obviously is the standard, but he's right up there. I mean, he is fantastic as this character. Just this very humanizing Superman who plays up all the best aspects of the character. I really I gotta I gotta pick up all the episodes of the show that I missed, man. I I never wanted to fall out of it. It just kinda happened and I gotta get back into it. No, I understand. With Doom Patrol coming out, that's a perfect excuse though. I have no issues with that. Uh, no, it was a great episode. Uh, loved every minute of it, and I'm very interested to see where things go from here. CW's best show keeps at it. Like, seriously, we can't stress this enough. This is why we talk about it each week. Superman and Lois really reminds you of what you love about Superman. And say what you will about the Snyderverse and all that nonsense. If you really want to find out why Superman connects with so many people, you watch the show, and you definitely will leave that question completely satisfied with an answer. That is how good the writing is on the show. The acting... Like Stu touched upon, Tyler Hawkland is absolutely crushing it in this role. And to see the dynamic of Superman with the family, like we say, they haven't really touched upon too much of it at this point in the season because they really spent a lot of time last season. But they're now implementing everybody with a storyline, which is great. And i love to see more of this happen. And I, I really want to see what the fallout is going to be now that Allie's got the pendants. You, get, you heard our takes, ODPH Society. Now we want to hear yours. Hit us up on that hashtag. Hashtag ODPHpod. Superman and Lois, Episode 7 of Season 2, entitled Antihero. Let us know what you thought. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Tom from Tom Joe Lou. This is Matt from Sideman Sounds. And you're listening to ODPH Podcast. Wanna go where no one knows my name To the desert, the oceans, or the plains Coming back for the final segment on this edition of the ODPH Podcast with Stu from SWO Productions. 
Pad, what you got for those one shots? Got a couple things to talk about, uh, real briefly, because we'll get more into it next week. But we do have to mention the Obi Wan Kenobi trailer finally fucking dropped. Uh, seeing as it comes out in like another month and a half. Uh, early reaction: Holy fuck, I need this now. I didn't realize you could get me more hyped up for a show than I already was with two goddamn freaking musical notes. Hello, Duel of the Fates. Yeah, I guess that kind of would catch some people. Yeah, uh, loved it. Loved everything about it. Uh, if you are not familiar with some of the folks you saw in that trailer, go uh, watch Star Wars Rebels and then watch a summary of Jedi Fallen Order. Stu, what was your thoughts on it? You know what? I haven't seen it. I'm not a big Star Wars guy. There are, what, 11 or 12 Star Wars movies. I've seen six or seven of them. I I tell people this because you hear like, oh, you've only seen so many Star Wars movies. You inherently think you know which ones I've seen. I have never seen the first Star Wars, and I've never seen Empire Strikes Back. Really? Okay. I pay attention to society, but like I've never actually sat through them and watched them. So that tells you my level of involvement with Star Wars. Uh, The Obi-Wan Kenobi show as a whole, it just seems like... What can you possibly do with that show that has any relevant action sequences but still leads to Darth Vader not knowing that guy lives there? That's very true. Yeah, I thought the show looked interesting. Like, I I really don't know what to expect from this. I don't think it's like a money grab like The Phantom Menace was, and I will not hear otherwise because that you can't tell me George Lucas has been sitting on that story for 20 years and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should make that film right now. No, I'm sorry. Like... This does look interesting, and everything that the House of Mouse has done with the Star Wars franchise on Disney Plus has been a home run. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to take that into perspective, and I'm giving this the benefit of the doubt. Like I just, I honestly thought it looked great. Sure, I just don't know what's going on, and I will definitely be watching it when it comes out. Yeah, but, it comes uh, out May 25th. Yeah, so which ironically is the whatever it would be anniversary of the first Star Wars movie coming out. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. A lot of folks figured it would come out on May the 4th because, hey, May the 4th be with you, which would have been good. But no, do the math. 2022 minus 1977. Uh, it's that anniversary of the very first Star Wars movie coming out. So, hey. Makes well, makes sense, but yeah. I'm excited for it. Uh, switching over to some uh, Game of Thrones news because George R. R. Martin decided to grace us with a blog post on his not a blog uh, post. Uh, he did say that he is heavily involved in every one of the new prequel shows, including the House of Dragon, which is uh, in post-production, uh, and it is going to be the first spinoff to arrive on our screens. It was also announced that the showrunners from the first Game of Thrones show are not in any way, shape, or form involved with any of the ongoing Game of Thrones productions. Thank fucking God. Don't let them near any <laughs> goddamn thing. Uh, he said, uh, quote, what I have seen, I have loved. Uh, he said it's not a representation of uh, everything in the works at HBO. Going on to say, quote, we are developing live action shows for HBO and animated shows for HBO Max. No, I can't tell you how many, but it is my hope that a number of these shows will get on the air. Not all. No, it is never all, but more than one. I certainly hope so. Uh, he also did go on to say that he is still, of course, working on Winds of Winter, which at this point we are now in year 12 of waiting for something like that. 12. Yeah. The last one came out in 2010 or 2011. Yeah. It's been 12 years. Uh, this thing is, this thing has a longer production time than the flash film. Uh, just saying, Oh my God. uh, we've been, we've been waiting a while. Listen, this, this book has been wait taking so long to come out. I started the books. It took me three or four years to read them just because they're long books. And I finished the books before the next one has come out. I'm going to need a goddamn refresh video 
to remind myself what happened in these books because obviously like much like Walking Dead, there's differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to need a goddamn refresh video for when the next book comes out. Uh, but he said he is still working on it. He didn't get as much work done on it as he did in 2020 as uh, he would have liked in 2021, but it's still coming. Listen, at this point, I'm convinced it's going to be like when Mark Twain wrote his autobiography. He wrote his own autobiography, but with the caveat, you can only release it 100 years after I'm dead. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same thing with Game of Thrones. Stu, you big Game of Thrones fan? You know what? You're killing my street cred here. I'm actually not. Uh, whenever the TV show came out, I started watching it with my wife, and I remember the exact moment I tapped out on the show was in somewhere in season two, the lady gives birth to the smoke monster from yeah. Lost, and I was like, that's it. I'm done with this show. I don't know what's happening anymore. I didn't start out on it just because my parents didn't have HBO when it first came out, but like, I was like, I was one of those things that were like, it seemed interesting. I'm into this fa- sci-fi fantasy stuff. Somebody told me it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, but like a more adult version. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I borrowed, I think seasons one and two from Ken and I borrowed season three from another friend and I went through, I'm like, all right, I got into it. You know, I enjoyed it for what it was, except for that last season. Cause yikes. Yeah, I got hooked into it because my roommate at the time was, like, obsessed with it. And every time I would come down the stairs or walk by the TV, it would always be on. It would be Peter Dinklage pissing off the side of the wall. Yep. Like, every time. Like, I don't know, like, some uncanny thing. I'm just like, so it took me a while because I'm like, I don't care about watching him take a number one off the wall. Like, that's just not doing anything for me. But then I got into the show I've never picked up the books because I'm not even trying to do it. And now at this it's stage, a, they're long. Yeah, like I ain't got time for that. At this stage, nope. I saw the show; it was enough. Um, and I'm just hoping that in his book, he goes Newhart with the ending, and it's Ned Stark waking up and just saying it was all a dream. <laughs> That's what I want. I need this in my life. So I'll have to wait to see how this goes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Just 12 years. Oh, forget about oh, it. Oh, ha- yeah. At, at least. Speaking of The Flash, uh, there was a whole slew of DC uh, films that were delayed, pushed back, or in some instances moved up. Uh, The slate now is Aquaman 2 has been delayed from December 2022 to March 17th, 2023. Black Adam has been pushed back from July 2022 to October 21st of 2022. The Flash is moving from November 2022 to June of 2023. Uh, DC's League of Super Pets, of course, that's the animated movie with uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson as Superman's pet dog, Crypto. Uh, That is moving from May of this year to July of this year. Uh, DC also in uh, some other stuff uh, announced Shazam Fury of the Gods has actually been moved up. Uh, That is from uh, December 20, uh, moved up and will now premiere on December 16th of this year instead of mid uh, December 2023. Uh, so a little bit of surprise, you know, I know some fans are a little bummed out stuff getting moved around, but, and I know some people are drawing comparisons. Oh, it's because of the acquisition by discovery. Discovery's moving stuff around or it. No, I, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think it's just, uh, varying degrees of films being done and Hey, this movie's done. It takes place later in the year. This movie that takes before place before it's not done. Let's just shuffle it around. That's the beauty of these DC movies. They're not interconnected like the Marvel ones. So you can move them around how you need to. Stu, what's your thoughts on these? Uh, boy, it seems like the timing is really bad with all the buzz going on, how much money the Batman is making, and then you come out and say, like, oh, by the way, we're pushing all of our other movies back. That is just throwing ice water on all the good hype that they should be having right now. Although, this is the first I'd heard that they moved up Shazam. So yeah. So, coming out this December now, I'm very excited for that, because of the, you know, the new era DC movies, basically everything since Dark Knight Rises, Shazam, I think, is still my favorite of the bunch, so I'm excited to get the sequel to that. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely sucks. It's definitely a bit of a wet blanket on things, especially since DC's been running that ad since Fandom. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, 2022 is the year for DC movies. Christ, they're even running it in the movie theaters. I saw it in, fr- I saw it in front of the Sony Pictures Uncharted movie. You know, the fact that they're running that, and that's now got to probably get pulled and reworked. Yikes. I know some fans are calling, and even one of our friends, podcast friends, I forget who it was last night, said uh, that The Flash is the new version of New Mutants. JT from East Coast. Yeah, JT from East Coast. The East Coast said it's the new, wondered if it's the new version of New Mutants, to which I say, hi, the the man who murdered Don Quixote would like to have a word with you. That movie was in production for 29 years. Avatar 2 has been in production for 13 years. Yeah, no. Uh, just it's, it's, uh, unfortunate circumstances, but we'll see when they come out. Yeah, I got to say, I'm not excited about The Flash at all. In fact, I hope they retcon the commercials and just have them run backwards. Because <laughs> at this point, I, honestly, I don't even care about this movie. It's going to retcon everything again, and who knows if they're going to try doing 5G on screen or whatever nonsense they want to try doing this movie. I, I'm, I'm sorry, the TV show is fine. I have no interest about this movie. Black Adam, I am excited for, even though it feels like Injustice 3. Mm-hmm. The tra- the trailers come to life. Like, that's what I get the vibes from. And Shazam, like, the more you can give it to me, I'm happy with. That was such a happy movie. Yeah. Like, that's what I love about it. Like, it was just fun. And because, I mean, you have to be fun with Shazam. Like, there's, he's one of the characters, even though he could kill Superman, like, it's a lighthearted book. It's just a one. Yeah. It's a weird thing about it. But DC doing DC things, or Warner Brothers is, you know, so at this stage... As long as we get the world of super pets on time, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Sticking with movie news, uh, the legendary Mark Hamill uh, took to Twitter after a fan asked him a question and confirmed one of the more, I'd say one of the more famous shots in Star Wars uh, was not uh, a reshoot, It was, and it wasn't actually done with the principal photography. Uh, so for those of you who have seen Empire Strikes Back, and no, that's not a dig it used to, it's just, I'm just refreshing people. <laughs> Just letting people know. Just me me that hasn't. Listen, I know people who haven't seen it, but at the end of Empire Strikes Back, of course, Luke finds out Vader's his father. Hand gets chopped off. Ah, Spoilers, man. Spoilers. It's 30 fucking years. Get the fuck. 40 fucking years. Get the fuck over it. You know, apparently the end shot, though, where Luke gets his hand reattached and then, you know, where they're standing at the window of the spaceship looking out into the galaxy. Apparently that wasn't in the initial done in the initial filming. Really? So some fans were going back and forth on Twitter thinking it might have been a reshoot or something added in. Uh, so they so, so they said we could ask Mark Hamill about it. Mark, did you guys reshoot the medical bay scene at the Empire at the end of Empire Strikes Back after principal photography had already wrapped? Because I looked at the exchange on Twitter. They're going back, they're consulting the making of books. You know, they couldn't figure anything out. Mark actually answered. And he said, quote, filmed four months after we wrapped principal photography on Empire Strikes Back. It wasn't a reshoot. It was an added scene. Concerned about the downbeat ending and thorough defeat of the protagonists, they wanted to add an uplifting moment of hope and rejuvenation to reassure the audience. To which I say, makes all the sense in the world. Without that scene, things are a little downbeat and things are a little goddamn disappointing. Uh, but it's one of those rare instances, much like the shawarma scene added to the end of the first Avengers movie works really well. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the last bit of news I got, this was announced yesterday at the PlayStation state of play. Uh, this is coming out in, I believe it's on next year. Uh, excuse me, coming out in, uh, yeah, coming out next year. Uh, this is the teenage mutant Ninja turtles, the Kawabunga collection. Okay. This is coming out for PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, uh, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, 
Xbox Series X and S and the PC. This is done in uh, by Konami and in collaboration with Nickelodeon and Digital Eclipse. This is giving you the entire game collection that spans the arcade, NES, Super NES, Sega Genesis, and the Game Boy games. Of course, these games have been updated with HD textures, modern features, such as you got save points and rewind. Uh, there will be local and online play in some instances, uh, and there are going to be some new modes uh, in the game. Uh, the full list of games include... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the arcade, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time from the arcade, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the NES, TMNT 2, the arcade game from the NES, TMNT 3, the Manhattan Project from the NES, TMNT 4, Turtles in Time from the SNES, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Hyperstone Heist from Genesis, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Fall of the Foot Clan from the uh, Nintendo Game Boy. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Back from the Sewers from the Game Boy. TMNT 3 Radical Rescue from the Game Boy. And then you've got uh, the three versions of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters from the uh, NES, SNES, and the Sega Genesis. So all in all, you I, there's no price listing for this yet, but you will have 13 games included in this little collection uh i personally might get it just because i love the shit out of turtles in time turtles in time is a great game Stu, what's your feelings on this you big gamer i i really like the turtles i i do like gaming i don't know if i'll get that i've never played most of those games but jesus christ from my formative years do i remember occasionally my stepdad just picking me up after school when we would go out to hills a little department store that doesn't exist in western pennsylvania anymore and i would just play the ninja turtles arcade game like that was it that would just be like my special treat for the day i love that game so much fun going out and playing that i remember when it got released on the nintendo and playing it there and it had extra levels that you couldn't even get on the actual arcade machine uh i i, I might get it just to replay some of those and to see if i could ever go back and friggin beat that nes game <laughs> Uh, yeah. I hear you. That game was impossible. Yeah, no, I, I never had it. Especially when especially when your favorite Ninja Turtle was Raphael like mine, and he was designed to lose badly. Oh, yeah, he's the <laughs> weakest one there. I don't understand why. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I understand everybody liked Michelangelo, but Donatello was the strongest character in the game, too. I liked Leonardo simply oh, yeah. because he had two swords. Yeah. I'm a simple, I was a simple kid. No, I'm super excited for this just because I never owned an NES, SNES, but my cousin who lived down in Long Island did. And we'd go down there maybe once or twice every year just to visit and hang out. And I, and I remember going down there and him having it and having Turtles in Time and going, yo, let's play Turtles in Time and loving the hell out of it. So I only ever got to play it maybe two or three times because, you know, there was a stretch of time we didn't go down. And then the next time we went down, I said, hey, let's play turtles in time on your oh i don't have that anymore i have a playstation one so i've only ever played it a handful of times never got that far in it so i want to finally be able to say i played it i own it and i've beaten the damn thing because i've never beaten it <laughs> goals pad goals exactly so for my one shots you know i'm a big fear the walking dead fan i know we didn't talk about the walking dead this week we'll catch up next week but fear has been announced it'll be returning april 17th Stu, you big walking dead fan uh, I gave up on the show a long time ago. I gave up on the show before Negan appeared. I remember it was the season finale of the season where they first got to Alexandria. And I just remember watching that finale going like, boy, this show is really just the same thing over and over. So I just tapped out on it. 
the comics were good. I think it was the same thing. I read the comics up until about like the issue 70 or 80 at some point. Again, they were in Alexandria and I was just like, all right, I'm kind of over this storyline. So, you know, God bless them. I'm sure they're making all the money in the universe. The Walking Dead, I think I told you on Twitter, it's like The Simpsons for me. Mm -hmm. It's just like, who still watches this show? It's crazy to see like all these spinoffs coming now. Like the the regular show is doing like the farewell tour that will never end. Yeah. Because it's like 24 episodes. They're breaking up into like eight parts or uh, eight. Eight segments. Eight Eight, segments. Eight eight episode segments. Yeah. And it's just like, we could have wrapped this up a lot sooner. And then they're announcing all these crazy spinoffs like Maggie and Negan are now on a show together. There's the Daryl and Carol show. Yep. No, that's not a joke. You've got the, (laughs) you've got the anthology series. Yeah. And then they just announced the Maggie and and uh Negan show which is taking place in New York City, which I got to admit, interesting venue to choose. It's an interesting venue, but like at this stage of the game it's like why? I mean, I understand to get the money and and you know, I I understand like there's a market that will will buy it and watch it. But for my viewing pleasure, I will say this in all honesty, Fear the Walking Dead has been a much better show over the past few years. I got back into that show at the 2020 New York Comic Con panel because they showed the first 10 minutes of the season premiere and it looked awesome because they were doing like a horror mystery show in an anthology style. So I'm like, okay, let me go check this out. And I got hooked because, one, they weren't afraid to kill major characters, which is something I thought The Walking Dead, the minute that they killed Glenn off and the ratings started plummeting because, oh, we're following the comics and now everybody's safe and Daryl is literally Wolverine on that show. He can't die no matter what. You, you take away the sense of danger on the show and that's what made The Walking Dead great. Fear sticks to that formula, even though fear has gotten completely crazy because I guess this will be a spoiler for you, Stu. Uh, last season, they had a nuclear warhead go off in the middle of Texas. So oh. now, on top of a zombie apocalypse, you now have nuclear fallout. Jesus. Yeah, like they, they, they it's crazy. nice wrinkle. Oh, yeah, it's a crazy setup they have, and just like yeah. how the survivors, because the show is now led by Lenny James, who plays Morgan. Like, he's the head actor on that show. He does a great job, and they have Col- Coleman Domingo, who's playing Strand, and he's, it's kind of like this weird Professor X, Xavier, or I mean, Magneto type relationship. That they're like trying to kill each other, but they kind of have to work together at times. Like it's a cool setup they have, and just how this is all playing out. Like for where that started, I thought has been something different. I wish the flagship show would do this instead of doing like eighteen million other spinoffs that are just ultimately I I don't see going past one season. I just I just don't. But Fear is coming back on April seventeenth. Super excited for that. And we also had the announcement today about the boys. You a big fan of that show, Stu? Uh, I've seen a little bit of it. I've seen a lot of season two. It's another one of those shows. Like I said, I don't watch a ton of TV. My wife watches every show on TV. So it's kind of back to whatever you guys were talking about Star Wars. I'm not a Star Wars person, but she watched the entire Mandalorian and I would pop in and out. Same thing with the boys. Like if I walked into the room while she was watching it, I'd catch some of the boys. Um, I like the comics. I'm a big, big fan of Russ Braun. He's a great guy. I like mm-hmm. whatever he took over the art. So I, I stay abreast of the boys stuff. If this is a new thing that I can jump right into, I'll probably check it out. Season three is debuting. It was just announced June 3rd on Amazon Prime Video. And they also have right now out uh, The Boys Diabolical, which is eight uh, animated episodes set in the boys' world. And it's all different animation styles. 
We did a parlay points view on it because we got we were fortunate enough to get early screener access to it. It is very, very cool. Like if you really like your animation really different and yet it still keeps the tone of the book, like Garth Ennis did one episode, Aquafina did another one writing, uh, Andy Samberg did one. Uh, Seth Rogen. Seth oh, Rogen. Wow. Yeah, like they have a lot of creative people going and it's completely insane of like where they're going with it. And they're short episodes too, so you could hammer them out like in just a couple hours. It is definitely something you want to go check out if you are a fan of that comic. Like, there, it keeps the vibe there too. Like, is so much there that if you're just walking into the boys' universe, you will definitely dig it, and you will not be able to look at certain things the same way again. I promise you that after watching this, because they go some places. Like, they go some really cool places. That's out right now on Amazon, and like I said, June third is when we're expecting the boys to debut. And then for my last thing, I got to plug was at the comic shops this week. Uh, actually, online because Comixology uh, Originals. I don't know if you're a big fan of Comixology, Stu. Uh, I think I had a free trial of it, but that's it. I never got around to paying for it. Gotcha. They have the Comixology Unlimited uh, subscription service where they have a lot of new original comics coming out on there. One of which is a book called Red Tag Number no. 1 by Rafael Scavone, uh, Rafael Albuquerque, and Roger Cruz. And it's kind of like it's set in Brazil, and it's about uh, this this uh, group of young people that is caught up in a political uh, thriller now because of a stolen phone. Like, it's a really cool comic to check out. There's also a book, uh, Self, number five, is just, just wrapping up, uh, which is kind of another cool one that's a little mistaken identity. It's a little sci-fi. It's a little different than your normal identity theft story, but you definitely want to go check that out as well. And then are you a big Power Rangers fan? You know what? Power Rangers was a little after my time growing up. i big fan of the Turtles and everything. Power Rangers came out right when I was in that age bracket where it was just like, no, I'm too cool for this. I'm a teenager now. So I just never retroactively got back into them. Fair enough. The comic series by Boom Studios has actually been excellent. They just wrapped up this big story called The Altarian War that Ryan Parrott did. Now is the fallout. They have a new creative team taking over, Matt Groom and Moises Hidalgo. And Mighty Morphin 17 is the jump-off point for that. That was an excellent issue. And, like, I'm with you. I was kind of in that uh, fandom that, like, I wasn't a big fan of the Power Rangers growing up. But I kept hearing about how good these comics were. And then I got, started reading them. And now I'm like, okay, I get it. I love these stories. They're definitely adding something different to this mythos that I was just like, I always thought was just a throwaway of a Voltron ripoff. Not going to lie. Like, growing up, that's what I always thought it was. But this, the books are actually really worth picking up by Boom, so I definitely recommend those. Comixology has been doing some cool things. And are you a fan of Radiant Black? No, I'm unfamiliar. What is that? So it is a superhero uh, book set on Image Comics. Kyle Higgins writes it. Uh, we actually just interviewed Kyle, Ryan Parrott, and Matt Groom uh, in January because they just did a crossover book with their characters. They're unveiling a, a new superhero shared universe under the Image banner. So, oh, okay. yeah. So if you're a fan of like Invincible, Radiant Black yeah. has kind of the, has kind of the same vibe to it. It's a different story completely, but it's one that I think is very excellent. And they've just started kind of spinning out a little bit from this shared universe. Like the the running title is the Massive Universe. Like you don't see everybody connected, but they all kind of live in the same kind of bubble. So yeah. they they've kind of sp- started doing a little spinoff from Radiant Black. Radiant Red just came out because there's. Much like in the sense of like the lanterns, there's like a radiant black, a radiant red, radiant pink. So they're now spinning off the story of radiant red. So that just hit the shelves too. 
I recommend that. I think the Radiant Black series is phenomenal. If you get a chance to pick that up, definitely give that a read. And if you love that, you can definitely check out Rogue Sun and Inferno Girl Red. Uh, Rogue Sun just dropped. Uh, second issue is coming out at the end of the month. And Inferno Girl Red is coming out under image. Uh, last I heard, it was in the summer. So some very cool books to check out, like I say. And you get kind of like an – I don't know, Pat, you've read Radiant Black. How would you describe it? Uh, it's it's hard to describe it all, honestly. It's a really good read, though. Yeah, it's like I say, it kind of borrows a little Invincible, borrows a little Green Lantern, and mix it all together. Like, it's a really cool book. That's what we can just that really – genuinely – that genuinely 100% sounds like what I've been saying for years now I want my comics to be like. I still want superheroes. I get that, by and large, the indie market is moving away from the, you know, cape genre. I still want superheroes. I still want a big, fun, connected universe. Uh, something more like Black Hammer, something if Invincible had had more stuff, like, shooting off of it. Uh, I really think that sounds exactly like what I'm looking for in comics. So I'm going to have to pick those up. Yeah, start with Radiant Black, and I guarantee you, you'll get hooked on it. Like, I, I took a flyer on it at Con this year, and I have never looked back. I'm like, every issue is like a must-read. And then when they did this crossover episode which uh, issue, which just came out, and it's one that if you don't know the other characters involved, it's fine. Like, it's a perfect jumping-on point. And if you know who they are, it's going to add more to. And like I said, Rogue Sun just came out two weeks ago. That's a great book, too. Uh, definitely some cool things there. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much about that on air. And they're announcing more that it's going to be kind of connected in this universe coming out. So it's definitely something I think would be right up your alley. So definitely, yeah, absolutely. yeah, so you definitely want to make sure you check that out at your local comic shops or wherever you buy comics and definitely make sure to support your local comics and shops and your local comic podcast. Cause we all put in work talking about the genre cause we love talking about it cause we're all fans. Last but certainly not least, Stu, what you got for one shots? Uh, I don't know how much you guys have talked about this. I, I know your episode came out on Tuesday. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Most of my news following this week has been about the Seahawks breaking my heart. I don't know what they're trying to do to me out here. I lived through the 90s. I'm not looking forward to another decade of us just being terrible. But <laughs> I can't believe that Russell Wilson trade. I My brain won't accept it. I can't believe they just cut Bobby Wagner. Uh, what's going on? What are they doing? They're hitting the reset button, and I don't understand oh, why. I love it. Like, like, oh, go. Is there any other time in history a top five quarterback who is 33 years old has been traded? Like, has that ever happened? Mm, not that I can th- not that I can think of, no. Tra- would, traded, no. That's absurd. Would you say Favre? But... Favre was a free agent, though. Yeah. Well, he, well, he was traded to the Jets. No, he was traded to the Jets. Traded to the Jets. Yeah, maybe Favre. No, but for like older though, wasn't he? Like he was. He oh was yeah, he was older, but at that point, yeah. but but I'm trying to think like who at this age would go and like what Seattle's doing. It's just it's puzzling because yeah, he, it's a, it was a terrible move. I can't believe they did that. Oh, absolutely! Like it's something that throws a big curveball because all they really needed to do was fix their offensive line. I know we're kind of getting off topic from the entertainment stuff, but I don't care. This is the ODPH. We talk a parlay of topics. So <laughs> guess what, folks? Here we are talking sports. This is something that when they were in the off season. You heard that Pete Carroll and Russell were not on the same page. Like somebody was going to go, and like I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard of any trouble between them. It wasn't like things became toxic, at least to my knowledge. But to see like how they're hitting the reset button, like the the Russell move was puzzling. Especially it's a lateral move. I'm sorry, like nobody can sell me that Denver's going to the Super Bowl this year unless they're buying a ticket. It's just not happening. 
And, I mean, granted, the Seahawks got a haul for him, if I can put it mildly. Pad? Oh, yeah, no, they did. <laughs> eight eight players, and including, like, draft picks and whatnot for one player. Yikes. Yeah. And then releasing Bobby Wagner was tough. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a tough move. Like, I think that one hurt more than Russell Wilson, to be honest with you. I know, yeah, like... You got something. You got something for Russ. Like, Bobby Wagner, man, like, you couldn't have gotten anything for him? Yeah, like, it's so crazy. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around that one. And I know, like, free agency has just started kicking off today for the NFL. And it's like, I am really hoping for Seattle's sake, you cleared out all this money, you had better go get somebody. Like, I don't know who you have lined up, but you had better go do something because the fact you got rid of Russell, who kept you in more games than anybody, is, like, you have no backup plan. Like... I, I don't know who's out there that's a, the top quarterback that you can go get and be like, that's our guy. That's our replacement. Like, we are upgrading. Like, I just, I, I don't I don't see it. They got Drew Locke, man. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like I said, I just don't see this. I mean, uh, like. He, I've heard rumors that say they're going to use the haul that they got for Russell to turn around and try to get Deshaun Watson, but that's a drop-off. Like, I would rather have Russ than Watson any day of the week. I don't care if Watson's younger. Yeah, like, I just, I don't I don't get it. I, I wish I could figure out what they're doing. Like, I've tried talking to the dog about this, too, and he is just, like, puzzled, yeah, perplexed. To, to put it mildly. Yeah, he's just, like, immediately get that text from him. He's like, WTF. And I'm just like... Here's, here's the nicest thing I can say. Like I've been a huge sports fan my entire life. Just very, very fanatical about sports, taking it very seriously. And then I finally saw what I never thought I was going to see. And that was Seattle winning a Super Bowl. And to be fair, ever since Seattle has won a Super Bowl, everything has been gravy to me. I said, I would never complain again. I don't know what they're doing. They're clearly not going to win another Super Bowl in the next decade. or No. So. But you know what? It's fine. They won a Super Bowl for me. I Like I said, I lived through the 90s. I never thought I'd see that team win a Super Bowl. So fine, whatever. You made me happy. It's 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 good. It's good. Yeah, I mean, you got to be happy with that. Like, I'm still waiting for I'm the Bills. Be... I, I live in Pittsburgh, and it's so frustrating because you have all these Steeler fans who, like, they finish 8-8, eight and eight and people around here think it's the end of the universe. Oh, my God. And it's like, you've won, you've won six Super Bowls. Shut up. <laughs> It's true, though. <laughs> it's true. When you have that kind of success and everybody expects it, it's like, yeah, an 8-8 eight and eight is, is a, the sky has fallen. Like, for me, yeah, as, a, yeah. as a Bills fan, I was like 8-8 eight and eight back a couple of years ago. I'm like, huh, that's a good year. Yeah. I ain't going to lie. Like, we had J.P. Lossman as our quarterback. We did 8-8. Eight and eight, I'm like, <laughs> I'm in a good place. Now we got Josh Allen. And now it's like if we only squip kicked, we probably would have won a Super Bowl this year. But, you know, our defense had a choke in 13 seconds. And, oh, that was a rough day. That was a rough yeah, one. That was a rough game, man. Yeah. But hey, we we didn't run Marshawn Lynch in the Super Bowl, so I know what it's like. Thank you. Coaching decisions, not squib kicking, not running Marshawn Lynch right there with you. I know how it feels. Yeah, like I know Pat Pat was in there doing a victory lap in my apartment. Uh, Two victory laps. Yeah, he was running crazy. He's like, they threw the ball. They threw it. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? Like, I think everybody was waiting on that play. Like, give the ball to Marshawn, game over. Well, and the best part is, I was in the car the next day with Dog, and he didn't kill me. Yeah, I know. He's, he was staring. I think he was contemplating, like... <laughs> I, I, I told Ken, because we, we were going over to your apartment to watch Monday Night Raw, 
And I said to I text kind of go, I'm picking Doug up. If he shows up without me, I'm dead someplace. Call the cops. Yeah, and just remember, Doug walked in. He just sat quietly, like, "What's going on?" He goes, "We're good." Like just, just that's all. Just two words the entire night. We're good. Oh man. Well, Stu, where? Why don't you tell our fine folks where can they find out about SWO and everything you're doing? We gotta give the whole lineage here. What? Where can we get SWOified? Uh, yeah, so pretty much any podcast player, you can check us out. It's the Stew World Order podcast. Like I said, we have guests every episode. Ken has been on twice. Ken will be on again in the very near future for our very special yes. one-year anniversary episode. Super excited Make about sure that. Check that out. And in addition to that, we have the website, SWOproductions.com, where we have pop culture articles pretty much every single day. We're going to change up the schedule a bit coming in April to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the show, but we're still going to have tons of articles every month. And over on Twitter, at SWO Productions, it's pretty much me talking about whatever I'm eating at the time. And just, I tweet a lot, but it's it's nothing of consequence. It's it's basically, I treat my very professional uh podcast twitter as if it's just me rambling to the world but it's fantastic rambles and the pop tart debate is always a fantastic <laughs> and i've got a lot of pop tart quests coming up i've got several boxes i haven't cracked open yet i can't wait to see i can't wait i just can't wait Stu, you're an awesome guest you're an awesome person thank you so much for coming on the show you are welcome back anytime we gotta do this more often my friend absolutely thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it love you guys love everything you guys do your show's fantastic all the time great stuff thank you so much we'll just wrap it up very simply for everything that is the odph swing on over to odphpodcast.com join the conversation check out the t public store check out the blogs check out everything that is up there because we want to interact with you and once again we are saying goodbye to you, everybody from the ODPH Society. One last time for the one only Stu from SWO Productions. Have a good day, everybody. Take care. The one and only Padawan J. Thank you, thank you. I'm your host, Ken M. Thank you, as always, for listening to the ODPH Podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. We'll see you next time. <laughs>